Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Actual Life Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And today we are going to continue our learning journey, joining John Verbeke as he leads us through his landmark groundbreaking series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. We are up to episode 23 now, and we're going to get into romanticism, the, the era of romanticism. The in the moment, here I am. Opposed Indeed. to just the, I love you so much. Right. Yeah. So what's up, Facebook fam? What's up, uh, YouTube? Sorry to cut you off there. Mm-hmm. You're in a mid-thought there. Oh, uh, well, you know, it's funny how we, you know, we associate the idea of, like, you know, ro- romance to just strictly, you know, the lo- love, lovey-dovey stuff, but, you know... Uh, Romance in- incorporates all of the emotions and expressions. It's just, you know, the draw to in the moment. You know, you could say like mm. a uh, young man's backpacking journey through Europe would be a romantic tale, if you will. You yeah. Know? yeah. And maybe be, he finds yeah. a little quote unquote romance in, in the meantime. <laughs> but. But there's a there's um, a recognition in romanticism that you can find you can get closer to the real through art somehow mm-hmm. rather than rationality alone that art will, sure. art and music will get you even closer yeah and we're look, looking for something like that because we're cut off from tradition you know mm-hmm. where, where we left off in the series and and in human history this the the tale that we're following is is our story humanity's story and um yeah last episode we were still reeling from the the dark hegelian or no, i'm sorry not hegelian what was the um, previious era called him oh uh it was just in brain yeah it's, uh, <laughs> just, collective forgetfulness a hellenistic hellenistic there thank you it was, yeah, it was, was an h word and then yeah. we know that's coming up and hellenistic era then like the dark age basically well yeah so last week we were discussing the relevancy of ai to the meaning crisis and and the scientific revolution mm-hmm. um through descartes argument against hobbes's idea that you could create a material thinker you know like a, a uh, thinker yeah. that is made out of the inert matter mm-hmm. um and some people would say that descartes argument is from you know some sort of you know catholic reservation um but uh i don't i don't think it was that neither does verveki it's more of this you know sense of like well you know this soul is something special to humans and there's something that makes humans special so you could see um like how that'd be scary to be like well if i could make you know something out of wood and wood and metal that could think like a human does and what does that mean the soul doesn't exist is that you know like there's a lot of questions yeah so um descartes argument is you know or descartes yeah so descartes uh reasoning is matter is real reality is mathematically measured Mm -hmm. um you have a reasoning your reasoning is um a process of having a goal standard of truth a purpose a meaning and through that a standard of behavior Yes, and rationality. This you know, this rational reasoning is not necessarily scientifically measurable. Right. Like you can't measure somebody's rationality. You can only measure the products of somebody's rationality. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like that's what we do with like statistics when we take you know people's opinions over thousands of people's or millions of people's or whatever. 
and then we can look at that statistic, you know, with math, but you can't necessarily, you know, like the sweetness of something, you can't measure that the beauty of something, you can't measure that. Um, how much, how comfortable is something, you know, somebody can tell you this chair is more comfortable than the other, but can you measure that? You know, cause some people think, Oh, the floor or a simple stool is more comfortable than that couch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mm-hmm. there are things that are not measurable. That is the, you know, the realm of the mind, if you will, opposed to just the matter of things. Um, so Descartes believed you can't have a material reasoner because there is no reason within matter. Matter just is. It's dead and inert. And science, so science explains things that actually are, but not the value of things. Like, so like worth, you know, like what's something worth, well, you know? So it's a, science is a very valueless system. Um, we talked about how matter was inert, um, and, uh, wondering how, how can you get reason out of matter? Um, and one example of the matter being say different, but the reasoning being the same is like the cat is on the mat. If you mm. said that in French, it would be different matter, if you will, but the same reasoning. So it's not necessarily the words themselves that make the meaning. Um, right. Right. Which kind of reminds me of like early, you know, back to earlier episodes, you know, like, you know, you put, um, you know, like you replace A's with something that looks like an H and you write, you know, like cat and all that, but it, mm-hmm. your brain just goes, Oh no, it doesn't matter it knows. necessarily about the material. It's, what it's used and he was using that example to explain structural functional organization it's not necessarily that shape that has the meaning in it it's the overall everything together the 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 material in this case informs but either way this is how the brain makes sense of reality so it can tell what the word is even though it looks it's an h and instead of c-a-t for cat it's like c-h-t but the two vertical lines on the h are tilted enough to look like an a so the brain puts together it knows how to do that same same way when we use you know like exclamation points to you know take the the i out of shit so you can write it in a comment you know like Mm -hmm. everybody knows they, they see that or those little whatever meme posters that people put, like if you're reading this, you're part of a you know a small portion or whatever portion of the population that brains do whatever. And it's like no, like most people can do that, except for the very very rare people that are so stuck on like that's not the right letters. <laughs> that's not even a letter. Right. I um, cannot figure out how to share something on Facebook anymore. This just gets harder and harder every week. I wonder what they're up to. Oh, Zuck and crew. You're the bane of my existence. I'm literally just trying to figure out how to share our cast stream from actually a podcast page on Facebook to my personal page, so people know we're on, we're online. Hmm. And uh, it doesn't like it doesn't like me to do that. Well, you know how I feel about the Facebook, so don't. <laughs> it makes it so difficult. Okay, so here's the live video. Bear with. Me for just a moment while I do this. Yeah, that's fine. You I want to continue? Yeah, I'll keep, continue. So through. we we discussed the different um, uh, qualities of reality. So there's the primary qualities. It's you know the the measurable, like the the measurableness of say objects and things like the density of something, the 
weight of something, how broad it is, how tall it is, what it's made out of. That's the primary. And then the secondary, the in the mind, the subjective qualities. Um, we call that qualia. Um, matter, uh, let's see, Descartes believed that matter does not possess the qualia, therefore... Um, there's no way for matter, um, to manipulate the world such as we do with the mind. Uh, so basically saying matter doesn't, matter doesn't have a mind, so we can't produce a mind out of it because it doesn't already have it in it. Um, which, you know, is kind of a weird circular thinking method, but at the time, you know, that does kind of make sense. Um, but, uh, let's see more. Um, so then we talked about the gap between logical certainty, which is that that can be measured in psychological th certainty, which is the in inability to doubt, which is things like bigotry. Um, and they're not directly connected. And, you know, that's the problem. You know, you, you can't, you can't, um, you can't measure somebody's inability to doubt themselves. So psychological certainty is probably the less preferable of the two as far as scientific or logical certainty and psychological certainty. But Descartes believed that we could merge the two. So you could be psychologically certain about something much in the same way that you can within the measurable universe. Yes. Um, and if you want to catch up on the notes, I'm just after the first break, if you have those noted. Yes, I believe that too. Um, okay, yeah, Ratch... Rationality becoming religiously held. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, rationality is not just the logical exposition of ideas, uh, but it's caring about truth on purpose according to values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, so our meaning comes first before... It's very incredibly difficult for humans to be completely 100% rational. In fact, we can't because even what we choose to put our minds on is going to be based off of some kind of meaning that we apply in our minds prior yeah, to our and, investigation and the the question of is rational uh, rationality just came up as well and you know that's something we still okay. battle with like is you know you can rationalize yourself into some pretty unjust circumstances mm -hmm. you know we we've seen it through history um but yeah you know and and yet again rationality is not measurable mm -hmm. you so this is a conundrum, you know, it's like, how can you be mentally certain about something that's in the realm that cannot be measured by yeah. measurable tools? Yeah. You know, you, it, like there, it, yeah, cause science, science can only describe how things are, what yeah. things are made of, but not how, how to be, it has no values. We apply the values uh, yeah. and D Descartes points this out. He's like, you can't be a material reasoner. <coughs> Matter itself is inert. If yes. we've decided and, and proven that matter is inert and that it has no purpose or inherent meaning to it or at least so it yeah. seems from our current perspective then then how, how how are you advocating in this way for rationality at, um, to be higher than meaning we are we are applying the meaning to it all the time yeah. we're th we think we're not but we actually are yeah um Science is teaching us that matter is purposeless, meaningless. So how can you get meaning out of matter? That that's the question. Yeah. And well, and and Descartes' belief was that you can't because matter does yeah. not possess meaning. Yeah. And so we've already moved from a world that believed that everything had a purpose. You know, every bit of matter had a purpose, and 
mm-hmm. you know, some type of everything reasoning, was... bo- bo- reason, quite literally reasoning within itself. Yes. But now we've shifted into this idea of the dead universe theory, if you mm-hmm. will. Everything's just inert. Yeah. The universe is not alive and intelligent and aware and co-creative with us anymore the way that we previously experienced. This is a very profound shift as far as humans go, because for pretty much all of human existence, even, you know, the the greats of Greek, you know, uh, the the Greek canon, if you will, um, those stories, they still believed in the world as being this alive thing that they're in, that they're with, that, you know, and this idea that there's the physical matter of things even your body is fleshy physical matter and then something else that you know we can't measure now that we're basing everything off of measurement instead of participating in the experience it's like Mm -hmm. well how can i quantify it and measure it and Mm -hmm. write it down and keep it for later yeah and And that's our basis for reality not the depth of experience that we're taking part in but how well we can measure it and you know and Descartes gets to the point where he's really questioning his belief in math. Like, you know, that whole, like, oh, is there, like, you know, is this a simulation? I've just been programmed to believe that math is right. Um, and, he goes that far with it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Is it, and so he questions his subjectivity, but the only thing he can't doubt is his existence. You know, he That's exists. Right. Um yeah, the qualities of experience are not mathematically describable, like secondary qualities, like how wonderful yeah. is life, how nice is the beach, qualities like you were saying that, the subjective, those that are in the subject, objective things where you can you can measure. I can tell you it, how heavy it, something is. The information is, is within yeah. the object, so it's yeah. objective. Um, that Those kinds of things we can verify. So yeah, that, that qualia that you were talking about, that's so central to consciousness and in in a sense of awareness. Um it's all secondary subjective qualities mm-hmm. that's you know this is really yeah. so thus ai may not ever have meaning or awareness because it can't have the quality of values that awareness can add to it like the way things mean to us you know it needs to be an organic being with survival needs well that's that's under the premise of the argument that our awareness and consciousness comes from something outside of just the physical measurable that's universe. right that's right yeah. you're right so um, then now we get back to this argument or this consideration sure. well you, you know say. particularly when we're dealing with you know like chat chat gpt4 in my opinion passed the turing test by convincing i'm sure one of those companies yeah. that helps the blind people do the i'm not a robot test and they did it for this robot to pass the test isn't the Turing test convincing? Well, I guess they would have to know it's a robot. Say, say that again in a little bit more detail. Well, how did this thing convince <clears throat> a human being? Well, so basically it pretended to be a blind person. Okay. And, and, it, and, it, emailed, and so it was trying to... Pass one of those I am not a robot tests. Trying to open an account and it got to the yeah. I am not a robot test. And it, yeah. of course, and so it, it so. emailed a company that does this for people who are like blind that can't see the pictures. Yeah, because those screen. tests are actually tracking your mouse movement. To see how you're going from picture to picture, yeah. highlighting the bike or the bus or the train or the tree. And or also AI still has has trouble identifying yeah. things within a picture. Like they can go with faces yeah. and stuff like that. But when you say like... But the hardest thing for it to emulate is like the natural organic hand movement that yeah. you get. You get this so they got print from that. It got a, a, a human to do its work for it. Mm-hmm. Um, By saying it was blind. So we have things... So it emulated yeah. a voice. Yeah, so it got on the phone with somebody? No, email. Oh, okay. Probably. Okay. I think it yeah. was email. But it could do a voice, too. 
nowadays. Sure. I, I mean, I don't think Ch- uh, GPT four is hooked up for voice um, stuff, but I mean, you could take that program and mix it with one of the voice AIs too. And oh yeah, it's plugged into all different kinds of voice. Um, but you know, so now that we're here on the edge, thinking about you know what, like interacting with artificial intelligences that are at least good enough at language that they can kind of convince us that there's something there mm-hmm. so much so that they have to keep reminding us that they're just a language processing program. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so basically Descartes worried about this withdrawal into the mind that he sees starting to happen. We're yeah. becoming increasingly separated from yeah. reality. Yeah. Cause first it was the mind in the world together mm-hmm. as this combined thing yeah our relation with and, the world is becoming yeah. more and, and more strange was, and then it was the mind and the math mm-hmm. like oh you can use your mind to do math and understand the world and now it's yes. just the mind in itself and this is similar to you know the the battle of wills concept that we were introduced to a few episodes ago yeah um where now god it's not god's reason it's god's will well now it's mind the mind's will the mind within it mm-hmm. you know the, the mind in itself, looking at itself, and able to describe itself, um, and so matter ha- and matter has no mind. So, in a world that's increasingly material, and we're going more into our mind, now we're getting further away yeah, from. Yeah, like Verveke put it as like we're islands of meaning in the midst of a vast, limitless, meaningless universe. At least yeah. that's our current orientation to reality, because yeah. yeah. we have through science seen that at least apparently to us right now it seems that oh, okay matter isn't moving on its own it goes according to cause and effect and so on yeah. and so forth um th- things that we once believed about the heavens are not exactly as we thought now that we've perfected our tools and we've advanced astronomy yeah we- we've changed our conception of reality and we have increasingly become separate in how we've tried to psychologically um orient ourselves as as we go along as we move along continually learning and understanding more and becoming more and more powerful um but our wisdom is is failing us because it is dependent on us having a symbiotic relation with our environment you know, we need to have a healthy relationship with ourselves, our environment, one another. Um, and we've sadly become increasingly disconnected. Now, so you talked about the logical certainty, the psychological certainty. Yeah, the, 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 ragged, the radical bigot, you could say, can't doubt their own bigotry. They're so psychologically certain that, and that's what psychological certainty is, for instance someone that is very stuck in a particular worldview. They see all of those other kinds of people as this blanket term. They're all evil. They're all bad. They're all traitors or whatever it is. Or even for you, liking that guy or whatever, you know, you could also like, you know, believe in that thing. you could look at that at, in the scientific realm, you know, it's just, we're, we're just told that quantum theory and string theory is, is the right one, even though, there's a lot of people that could say, no, it's not, but you're not allowed to question mm-hmm. that within the science realm. No, that's the thing. And there's a lot of energy and time and money put into that thing, yep. Yep. even though it, it, it ends up pinching like, you know, the theory, once you get through the math long enough, your equations end up pinching off at either end. That means you don't have a proper understanding. It should just continue going if you have the right math. Right. Right. But, um, 
Yeah, so like you could have in, like scientific institution bigotry, which is a big thing. You know, everybody has to fight through that bigotry to get their theory taken seriously. Right. You know, like uh, Graham Hancock had to deal with a lot of it. You know, this whole idea that's like, no, humans have only been, you know, in the Americas for however long and all this stuff. And he was just like, no, like humans were probably a lot more sophisticated than we thought. Now we're finding, you know, like, yeah, 15, 10, 10, 20,000 years ago, we're finding yeah, like footprints in Mexico and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like immaculately, yeah, you know, uh, carved bases out of hard stone mm-hmm. that aren't even pottery that was molded, yeah. but like stuff that's like one eightieth so, of an inch you know, thick that is perfectly balanced, perfectly made as though it was machined. We don't even know how they made these bases that are pre Egyptian, uh, most likely yeah. stored in an early. Um, like first dynastic Egypt, like in some tomb underground. There's thousands of these bases. Like they had inherited them from some somewhere because they they don't make them. And and the bases that we find that the Egyptians have in the that dynastic era so above the ground, stuff, old, basically not, not old, stored old in the stuff tomb. We can't explain. Yeah, the old and, stuff that they stored in their basements, basically we can't explain. But the stuff that they had above the ground that they used on their dinner tables all the time and everything it was normal pottery that that was imitating this old stone style that somebody had somehow figured out how to carve. Like this isn't even shaped pottery. It's vases that were carved out of really hard stone and literally the things are like an 80th of an inch fit thick, uh, perfect circumference on the openings of the vases. And it's incredible that, that somehow ancient humans did this and we don't even know how they pulled it off. Well, yeah, that kind of stuff happens. Um, that's for sure, and that's a sidetrack. But Graham Hancock is cool, man. Yeah, but I guess that. the point I was bringing up with him is just an example of absolutely of yeah scientific institutional bigotry, bigotry um, that can occur, yeah. closed mindedness that that basically any kind of certainty uh, that we hold within ourselves in our minds is our psychological certainty. And Descartes realizes he can even doubt the math, like you were saying earlier. Like an evil genius could have programmed this reality and programmed him to to not be able to doubt math. And so he realized, oh my gosh, anything that I, you know, reality itself could be an illusion. Even this is where we really start to get into a head trip as a species. You know, when people start thinking about this stuff, they're like, what the heck is going on in this reality? You know, before we had some kind of spiritual relation with it. Now we're understanding it materially and we don't know how to relate to it anymore. God, I mean, this whole thing could be an illusion, but he can't doubt that he exists. Yeah. Now, even if everything is an illusion, I, I'm still here. I still feel existence. We still feel existence. So there is one thing we can know for certain, but anything else could be illusion. Okay. So to be able to suffer from illusion, I must exist. So we go from, like you were saying, from mind in touch with the world to mind that can only be in touch with the world through something like math to understand it and then no it's how the mind interprets the math because now we're starting to see how our psychology works so we're further and further and further separated from our sense of oneness with reality that we used to naturally experience and and matter has no mind so yeah pay it no mind yeah so it's we've taken be in your head you can make the universe whatever you want if your will's strong enough if you have mind enough to do so yeah I think that's a very foolish way of going yeah. through life, but there is some truth in that. Like you know, sure, but it, we lost a sense of the sacred yeah. along the way. 
Well, and what are you going to, what are you trying to turn the world into? And there's certain things you can change and things you can't change. And if you spend your time trying to change the things you can't change, then you're going to waste your life. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and if there's no sacred, if there's no higher ideals for us to strive for, and if there is no ultimate moral goodness or virtue or anything like that, then anything goes. And who wants to live in the world where anything goes at all times? Well, there's a lot of people I mean, who, who, who say they would like to, but as soon as it shows up, they're going to be the first ones in the bread line demanding being fed. Oh, yeah. And hiding um, behind the people that are actually trying to protect people yeah. from being abused. And so we uh, we discussed weak AI and strong AI. Yeah. So um, uh, yeah. general, general AI, which is the strong AI. So the weak AI is basically like, you know, your basic computations, um, yeah, it's, spell it's not check, a great term. Spell check because uh, it's, this stuff isn't weak at all. It's sorting out, yeah, yeah sorting algorithms, things like that. Th- things that Anything make anything a computer can do. Yeah, yeah, well, things that make tasks easier for humans. That's yeah. weak AI, but yeah. it doesn't advance our scientific it understanding. Yeah, no. The strong AI is an strong instance, AG would be AGI. Yeah, yeah. would be an instance of mind. Artificial general intelligence, which we haven't reached yet. And so that's, you know, that's the, an actual instance of mine. And how would you. Yeah. Self-awareness with a sense of quality, a subjective experience, all that. And how would you know that you've made it? And I guess Vivekanand said, well. (laughs) Because it can can imitate it before it becomes that, if it ever does. You would have, you would, you would have it explain how Descartes is wrong um, with his, with his own argument. Yeah. Basically with his own argument. That's yeah. so ingenious because okay. that, that, can do that, that, that means it's able to put itself in somebody else's shoes, reasoning from that perspective and then find the faults within that perspective. So yeah. almost like self Socratizing as well as, yeah. And this is also going, a problem that we haven't been yeah. able to solve yet. Yeah. So if it comes up with a genuine answer to it, we'll be able to tell if it's, uh, quite perhaps actually is self-aware. A strong AI, you would say. And we talked about, uh, you know, the mind and the purpose and the inert matter, the forces and energy, mm-hmm. and both lack each other's qualities. So the matter doesn't have the mind, but the mind isn't of the measurable matter either. Right. So yeah. they're always constant. Like, it's a, it's a dance where the partners never touch, never look at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I go into a rave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mind and madly, matter are essentially different to Descartes. So how do they interact then if the mind mm-hmm. is immaterial and matter is material? Mind has no energy. It doesn't take up space. It has no force. Yet we know it exists. Yeah. It's the product of many things happening within our brains, perhaps. But also, but what it, it does, could be that it's in relationship but, with uh, an aware, aware universe that is nothing but what, a thought in God's mind. What the mind can do is it can move the body which can manipulate the cup that can give the water that was depleted by the body Mm -hmm. the thought i i am thirsty Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. the conscious moving of your and even the unconscious moving you know when you're driving and you space out and you're like where am i and you've been (laughs) driving the whole time you know um (laughs) it's crazy we can do it yeah um yeah yeah so descartes uses the gap between the two, mind and matter, to argue against Hobbes. But unfortunately, this means that we are indeed radically disconnected from ourselves. And actually, I think it it disproves Descartes to a certain degree as well, because this bidirectionality of the mind being able to manipulate the matter, but the inert matter being able to cause you pain, which is a mental process, 
disproves the fact that the matter and the mind are so disconnected as we once thought it's still there's still a reaction between the two but it's not a measurable mm, state yeah. or at least at that period of time now we can scan your brain you can prick your finger and we can see you know, yeah. The, yeah. the the lighting up of things but at this period of time you know I, I i don't i'm not sure if they were even at the point of realizing that the brain was the center of reasoning um i'm I'm not, I'm not, you know, too, I'm not, not too to up on medical history, now, but yeah, not because the there's a long period now. of time where, you know, people assumed mental reasoning was in like your chest or your belly or, you know, in the heart, there's the argument, sure. the brain or the yeah. heart for yeah. a while, yeah. Yeah. the heart, you know, well, if the heart goes, you're done. Brain goes, you're done. It's an interesting question yeah. for this period of time. Cause this is still like the cost of the beginning of the time. You're realizing now revolution. your, your gut is very much a function of mm -hmm. uh, how you think as well. So it yeah. goes even further. Yeah. Um, but at this period of time, there was no real conception of that. You know, they maybe early on, they were starting to like open up people's brains and being like, there's something to this custard that's in there. Oh, and sure. It's connected to everything yeah. else, but not, this is the place that all thought and reasoning comes from. You're right, because we did think that a lot of our reasoning, our thought, mm -hmm. our emotionality, is, particularly was in our body, in our heart or our stomach. The thinking, of course, is yeah. happening in the brain, but what about the feeling parts? Yeah, yeah, so the word ineffable is the word Verveke used, but the relationship between the mind and the body and what's going on with that is ineffable, immeasurable. Mm -hmm. Can't talk about it, really. Like you, you can, You can, but you can't really, like... Yeah, he comes to the terrifying... Um, consideration that how do I know everyone else isn't mindless automatons either? Mm -hmm. The only mind yeah. that can touch is my own. Tim Poole talks about this a lot when he mentions the um, what, what do you call it? Simulation the simulation theory. theory. And he had a guest on, it was just like, you know, he was talking, and it's like, yeah, y'all could just like, you know, not be real and just, you know, simulations for my whatever. And his guest said something, he's like, or we could all just be simula you know, be NPCs for your. For your simulation, you just don't know. So. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, well, you know, that it's such a funny idea that people will play with that and, and not, and you know, are maybe doing so in an atheistic point of view too sometimes. It's mm -hmm. it's weird because it's you're just getting into a weird Russian doll situation. Something had to create the initial universe that the beings that created this universe exist in. Right. Where, where, how did that begin? You know, you can't just say the universe is a simulation to solve for the big bang, mm -hmm. you know, or multiverse theory. It's you're still stuck in that Russian doll, like a continual regress situation. So, um, to continue on just so we can get through, cause yeah, we're running yeah, up on 30 on. minutes. So we're, uh, uh, the Descartes had some points. One, the, the math is real. And two, the consciousness is the touchstone of reality. Yeah. It's a seesawing between the two. Yes. I um, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good way to put that yeah and we've been careening swinging back and forth yeah and science says what's real and not real but what if it's all an illusion or a dream uh we we don't know the bait what what which basis for reality to agree on now uh one of scientific materialism one of and we all divine just insult each other and do ad hominem yeah, attacks so we, we're down to ad hominem attacks now to yeah. prove our points because we don't even agree on a basis for for reality so the romant the the romantics came in with the ideas what is real is my own personal experience and to you know um give descartes his due with the thought of the only thing i can't really disprove is my own existence mm -hmm. that's kind of that okay well if that's the case and you 
the only thing you can't disprove is your own existence, then the only thing that's really real, what is most real is my own personal experience in this world. Yeah. Which, you know, that's where it landed. Right. Um, So all, all we have now at this point is an isolated, contentless, no autobiographical, you know, moment, mm-hmm. a limitless, meaningless emptiness. That's inherently unstable as well. Yeah. Um, because, like, it could all just be a dream. How yeah, do you we're, know we're your experience is real? Tortured, fragmentary, yeah. conflictory worldview nowadays. And this this has been like this ever yeah. s- since this time. This so, has yeah. slowly gotten worse, you could say. So we've lost perspective. We've lost tradition um, and a bunch of other things that were necessary. And somehow... We still think we have contact with our mind. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you so, know, but so, Dewey, what is that I, that in that I that? think, therefore I am? What is that thing? Are you so sure about that I? Yeah, is it introspection? Is it memory? Yeah. You know, because there's no mathematical, mathematical way for us to measure past experience. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, how, yes. how, do, how do we describe our relation with reality now how do we understand our place in yeah. time and space now? and it's it's now the only contact you have reality is the moment it's now because the past already happened and the future yep. is yet to come it's an idea of what's to come yeah so so it's the body stuck in empty space of this now surrounded by nothing which is terrifying mm-hmm. um, that's why people don't want to meditate because yeah. you you are inviting yourself into the now yeah, and so we're introduced to Pascal, which was a real smart guy. Yes, you know? he had a transcendent experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, He recognized something was missing, that a spirit of finesse was missing. Yes, the, yeah, yeah, the... We, we had lost our procedural, perspectival, mm-hmm. and participatory modes. We, we were just down to proclamations of what we believe at this point. We are no longer experiencing life through participation, just yeah. according to and, proclamations. And this idea of being in the right space at the right time. Um, yeah, and like, proclamations are flimsy. They're not yeah. heavy things to hold on to. They're not sturdy. And so that spirit of finesse is within the idea of self-transcendence. So yes. we've lost that. Yes. Which makes you know yes. a lot of sense. That's a, um, that, yeah. that stuckness we feel. We, there, we feel like we can't go up. We're just constantly being crushed. Yeah, there's nothing to turn self-transcendence into wisdom anymore we used to have wisdom schools mm-hmm. for people that helped them have altered states of consciousness self-transcendent experiences experiences where you transcend the psychological sense of self you feel the communion the oneness with all of reality whatever that phenomenon is that people acro- across the planet regardless of culture or time period have all experienced and talked about this ineffable oneness that we can all experience yeah. They're, they're all running into this. So without a way to turn that into wisdom, actionable wisdom anymore, to live our lives according to the realizations of self-transcendence, we are lost. Yeah. And so, so now we're going to get into... Uh, yeah, I've got one last quote from my notes, and this is John Verveke, um quoting, I think, somebody else, which I didn't write down because I'm a loser. Uh, <laughs> the loss of the spirit of finesse has left us bereft of the transformative truth. Mm, yeah. Or of transformative truth, not the transformative truth, but transformative yes, truth. The process of experiential knowing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and when you think finesse, what do you think? Somebody who can gracefully do something or um, like in modern times, oh, you know, oh, you got finessed is when somebody can, you know, like trick mm-hmm. you into something, usually out of money. 
but you know, like this idea that you can do something with such grace and so smoothly and very adeptly and you are in deep accord you know, with reality in a very accurate way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like somebody who does, does the perfect dive with the corkscrews and the mm-hmm. other stuff and then just makes one tiny little drip of water come out of the top of mm-hmm. it. That's finesse. Yes. Good cu- cutting skills. How That's can we finesse, bring that back you know, into you know, our personal lives yeah. and our interactions with an in upward our, in trajectory? Our, yeah. And yeah. in our, in our social uh, methods of organization and science and schooling and so forth yeah how can we bring finesse back to life yeah name of the game so we're going to talk about the romantics and this idea of your own personal experience being the definer of reality and truth and particularly within the moment the mm-hmm. moment that and a lot of the drama that comes from you know romantic tales is because you're in the moment and then your repercussions happen in a later moment but yeah. you're so in yeah. the moment while you're doing it, you know, that's Romeo and Juliet is a romance, not because they're they're madly in love with each other. That's just a premise to explain the story of how the families are having interactions and the warnings of becoming too passionate. And it's like, oh, she wasn't, you know, wasn't actually dead or no, he wasn't actually dead or however it was. Uh, but then you killed yourself anyway. And then you had to get, you know, do it all over again so because tragic. you weren't yeah. thinking about it. And the families weren't thinking about their war with each other and all, all that stuff. Hmm. But um, and then there was the art during the romance period. The art became very beautiful and very accurate. Like as far as you know, like yes, you yes. know, you see like what's that um, that painting where God's in the brain with all of his little cher- cherubims hanging off of sure. him, and he's got he's really forcing out to make Michael, contact. Michelangelo, what is that called? Um, yeah, the touch. That, except the, the thing is, is the guy's not reaching out. The guy's just kind of like, Ugh, you know. I don't know. Well, God's like shaped like a brain too. Yeah, like, his, his cloak is very much shaped like a brain. But I've, but like if you look at that, they're very accurate. They're trying to tell things. And if you look at you know like what you know on the Sistine Chapel, and you look up there, it's, it's a deep message. It's not like what art used to be because like if you look at like sculptures from like Egyptian sculptures and Persian sculptures, they're very and even Greek sculptures, they're very idealized body types. And you know the mm. the kings and every they're very stiff. And, you know, they didn't look very real. And then there's just this explosion of realism. And now you're seeing things carved out of marble that look like flesh and, you know, like, and parables and stories told within a single painting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know exactly time-wise when all this matches up, but this is all about that same area where everybody starts thinking and, like, we're going to go into a renaissance of thought and being. And We go into and, an age you know, of enlightenment yeah. here for a little bit, and it's beautiful. And it's it's a beautiful answer to the dark period that we had just probably one of the better things we could have done from that that is what i (laughs) really really hope that we can do today i I, I think because it's it's, the the stakes are so much higher right now i think it's coming i'm seeing you know like how how people are creating systems for themselves opposed to relying on old redundant you know calcified systems you know like you can take like there's a lot of people out there music that are lighting candles yeah. And now with the internet, you know, these people who are creating their own spaces are also tech savvy and are creating new niches mm-hmm. within like the, the internet itself, which is still really new, but now mm-hmm. it's evolving again. And yeah, there's, with, there's a lot of people seeing past the infighting, you know, the sides, the gangs, that I, everyone, I, everyone's got to choose a side I, and be I, a part of this I, or I frankly that. think most yeah. people are tired of it. Mm-hmm. And then a good chunk of the most people that are tired of it are finally getting to the point where they're just like, 
actually talking about it and be like, nah, I'm 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 not participating. Yeah, not this just more. going I'm along. Gonna, I'm going to do my thing and hang out with people who want to do their thing, and we're going to do yeah. that. Um, yeah. You know, screw yeah. all that. Going nonsense. along with the group is normally safe, and sometimes you know the group that you're used to identifying with is reliable enough that you'll just kind of go along. But when you start finding out your group is going along with some really yeah. really dark. Well, and even your evil own, machinations, then you uh, even your own misconceptions of the world as it mm-hmm. was that informed your thinking and how you viewed the world. Because mm. um, you know, like God, yeah. And then yeah. when you, I hate to We've say, it, be but wake up certainty. and start to see things, yeah. and you have that moment where you break, and you're just like, oh my God. Yeah. But then you move through, and hopefully, if you can move through enough, then you go through your own personal golden age, if you will, um, of reasoning and understanding. Mm. Um, yeah. And hopefully that can continue on through life. Because humans, yeah. humans as a species are psychologically and spiritually evolving. But then the human goes through the same process that we see that we've done as a species over hundreds of thousands of years. Yep. You know, so, yep. um, you know, like I, I equate the times right now is we're like, you know, teenagers moving into adult, uh, into young adulthood as a species We've got all the abilities to do things, things to access, but we don't have the wisdom to do it properly. So we're screwing things up like you do as an older teenager or a young adult when you, you know, go out and you live in the, and you know, the, not the squat house, but you know, the house with a bunch of other, you know, like, you know, 20 other people in there and everything's all messed up and your relationships are messed up. Your jobs are messed up. Like everything's messed up. We're at that point. We're growing. Hmm. And like teenagers, young and uh, young adults as a species right now, we're very self-destructive um you know everything's about resistance and yeah we're this, very this capable. is me and my group and that's you and your group my group's better than your group a lot of and, energy we're very capable you know. but yeah we can be but destructive as a young adult then you go through the period of time where you're like man like you know go to the festival and you see like how can everybody love each other and be so open and awesome so we're going to end up probably going through that where there's actually loving and open and awesome but then at the end of that you're going to realize well that works in certain oh, circumstances gosh. but life is real so we're, I think out of this, we're going to see probably mm-hmm. a pretty beautiful boon yeah. and I won't be alive to see the end of it. I don't think any of us will, but then afterwards we're going to have to go through tougher times again to show that it's like, okay, in certain aspects of life, yes, we can have this loving, very connected relationship, but the world is still harsh. Hmm. The, the life is yeah. still harsh yep. and we still have to all the more be reason. tempered and resilient, hope for the best, prepare for the worst and push forward towards the best as best we can. And if it doesn't happen, don't be broken. So don't, you know, like I, what, um, I forget who it says, but building anti-fragile systems. Oh yeah. You do that. Daniel Schmachtenberger. Yeah, yeah. Daniel Schmachtenberger. You do that within yourself too. You build yourself into an anti-fragile system. Yeah. Um, so That's it. when That's things it. happen yeah. to you, you don't just break down and, and turn yeah. into mush. He talked about you know? that on one of one episode of the Stoa that was really, really helpful mm-hmm. for me. And, um, yeah, I, I highly recommend the Stoa on YouTube for all of you all. If you enjoy this content, you would enjoy that content yeah. as well. And Dan, definitely take out, check out uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger. I'm not sure if it's pronounced Schmachtenberger or Schmachtenberger. It's I'm, a crazy last name. I'm from East Coast, West Virginia. It's Schmachtenberger for me. But if, yeah. I'm sure if you're from like, you know, the Midwest, it's Schmachtenberger. Because, yeah. you know, Schmach- the but, yeah, but if you just search Daniel, S-C-H-M-A-C-H-T, something like that. It'd probably be easier to type in the Just put a bunch of consonants in together, and yeah. you'll, you'll get them to pop up. Daniel the Stoa would probably work. Yeah, he uh, Daniel works uh, with Tristan Harris, um, 
at the Center for Humane Technology that I believe they founded together, or they at least work on together, and the Consilience Project as well. Mm -hmm. He's doing some amazing work in the world. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people out here doing this work right now, and um, they're not on anyone's side besides Team Humanity, Team Earth, you know. Team Earth and, and there's people sparing left us. and right of center, all different dispositions. You know, some believe in God, some don't at all, and they're all working together, mm-hmm. trying to make the world a better place and figure out how we can get past our tribalism and basically re- reducing suffering as much as you can. Yeah, in a in a world that is prone to ducka and putting many <laughs> minds together so we can collectively make sense of reality because we have to ratchet up our wisdom. Yeah, well, you know, our and, sense. And even beyond ratchet up, we need to reclaim. All, reclaim we need to re- reclaim say, this, yeah. this, this, this idea of wisdom and being able to go somewhere and be with people whose intent, like the intent of the place and the intent of the people, is to garner wisdom mm-hmm. um, yeah. and spread wisdom and share wisdom. You know, it's like the days of you know everybody going. You know, if you really want to do it, you go to a monastery. There are people who still like we have monasteries around here in Podunk, West Virginia area. We have that, but for most people, they're not going to go off to a monastery. But if there's a place that they can go every day and have these conversations, you know, I, I you know, I'd like a pub. Like, I, you know, if I if I had the money and the business wherewithal to do this, I'd like a pub that has a you can talk religion and politics um, rule. But if you get out of control and emotional, you're going to be kicked out and if you keep doing it we're going to ban you um, because you do have to you know keep if 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 you can't drink and keep your temper in control then you can't do it here but i'd love to see a pub where it's like you no, know, you go and do what you used to do you get around you talk sit over a few beers and i don't mean like getting riley and getting loud i mean like literally trying to fight people because they said they don't like your president or yeah um or it might just have to be coffee and tea and not alcohol maybe Maybe make it a private club base where it's you know like you can come in the you, first you few times only get and then into, you do to the private section if you well, right, where you can drink or, if you're do, invited. We have perhaps. a few private clubs around here. And you can get kicked out, yeah. Where it's basically you, know, you get in there and you pay five a month, five bucks a month dues to be able to right. go into a place where you don't have to worry about you know I don't know like some college jock kid that wants to punch you in the head because you're chatting up his girlfriend about you know philosophy. Um, but you know the idea of reclaiming our where we would go and hang out and the pub it was the public house that's where you discuss this stuff and even if you weren't drinking you're getting food you're hanging out doing your tea doing the after work thing getting around with people and if you're not a drinker then other places have coffee shops that you're allowed to do this at on the street places Mm -hmm. on the street but now there are no places that i am allowed to talk about stuff like this or the touchy subjects without you know getting the stink eyes like oh you know you shouldn't be talking we need a place to talk about these things and practice philosophy and wisdom as well and that's 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 where it gets tricky is bringing in the the deeper aspects of the practices but even just as a collective place that people can come and make sense together um you know and utilize our intelligence to figure things out together that that would be highly important and then the centers where people can also practice wisdom together conjoined with though they, they need to be conjoined together the way they used to be we lost that universities and spiritual centers used to be conjoined in a practice um but in this this episode is going to be interesting for people um this is a challenging one you know even for me it's it's a challenging one for anyone that watches it i suspect because of what he of what he of the challenge that he raises in this episode um the potential 
of us figuring out how to live deeper spiritual or you could say religious lives without the trap of uh, tribal religious grouping that we typically fall into when we practice religion the way that we have previously. And so what's the next version of spirituality for human being is what we're going to actually start touching on here a little bit. Yeah, and, and you know, it'd be cool, you know, to kind of introduce something that I could you could consider sec- secular spirituality and wisdom making that isn't just crystals and incense. Yeah. But, you know, that is like, actually, it's like, okay, well... You don't have to believe in a God or a Christian God or any of this. We're going to just talk about techniques on, you know, like, you know, well, do what basically is being done, like how Vervecki's doing it. You know, yeah. we do spend time talking about Christianity, but in the West, Christianity was the dominant, not just religion, but also, you know, sometimes governing force and, and all the great thinkers were Christians of some way or another. Yeah, as agreed upon yeah. moral system yeah. and that in that way. But, Since we all were basically, but I guess, pardon, uh, it was, yeah, adjusting, making a new or adjusting old agreed upon moral systems and coming up with something new that that can, doesn't require you to that has the weight by uh, what's yeah. what's the term um, to, buy into dogma and, or yeah that uh, the, the 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 proposal or, or pronounce you know like you know, I, you know oh yeah proclamation proclamation yeah. without having you to just take a, 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 a proclamation it's, it's like no like i'm not here for the it's proclamation. deeper than just proclaiming yeah. a belief yeah. yeah yeah actually i'd like to see churches do that more yeah, it's too. cool that you said that and you, you raise a good point there and i was watching a video i shared it today on um my earth's awakening news page on facebook if you guys want to check that out but it was russell brand uh speaking with cornell west and russell was asking cornell is like how do we talk about this side of things they started getting into the sacred together and the subject of spiritual spiritual spirituality spiritual life he's like what what is there that we can how, how can we talk about this in in a way that isn't new agey that isn't nary fairy that's that actually has some strength and weight to it yeah you know how can we imbue that's actually graceful spirituality with something yeah. that yeah with something deep and reliable and confirmable mm-hmm. and that everyone can kind of rally around because right now it's kind of diffuse and spread out as we've begun to re-explore spirituality and we're pretty much anything goes we're taking a little bit of this a little bit of that you know i'm studying stoicism buddhism advaita vedanta yoga like everyone's done this a lot of people in fact have done this nowadays as we've tried to kind of reform a spiritual life in the modern age and you know where does this end up does it continue to become more diffuse or do we find a way to start finding what actually is reliable and works very well for the largest number of people um and and the individual well, i think part of that process is the, diff- the diffusion the diffusion it is the, diffu- the diffusion the a part of it yeah um you yeah. know what we're going through right now is natural it's what yeah. you would have to go yeah. through yeah so, so now we understand why new age the new ageism got the way it is and everything else is happening and i think that was necessary to you know all the yeah. super like almost cringe now hippie stuff when you look back yeah. and you're like so oh my god cringe, but that was great but yeah it's but just it was it, it was important yeah. at the time and it played a part so you every everything that happened in the past had to happen for you to be here right yeah. now as you are yeah. having the thoughts for us you had. A, so yeah to be at this point in history if it happened any different it wouldn't be this so you know we had to learn these lessons indeed so yeah yeah. This has been awesome. Um, just getting to chat with you guys for a little bit. We are going to jump in now. Uh, before we do, I want to thank you all 
Guys, we hit 100,000 plays on the podcast this week. I think it was yesterday at some point, and I, I missed it. I saw that it was about to come, though. And, uh, you know, I looked today, and it was like 100,000, 200-something. And I'm like, my gosh, okay. It, it took four or five years to get here. But the past couple of years have been rocking and just growing and growing. And, it, you know, I wouldn't be here doing this right now uh, without all of you. And uh, so I'm... I'm thanking you guys right now i'm very grateful uh we got people in like literally over 50 countries across the planet mostly in uh the u.s and canada and and uh great britain but but we really are all over um and that that's really exciting it means a lot and it also tells me that you all are as hungry for meaning as i've been and finding a way back home together is the goal of this cast so i'm so grateful and humbled that you all have joined us and this gentleman here, one of my great friends. Who you calling gentle? I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> he can be, though. Look at him. He's fluffy. Uh, yeah, you know, that's an illusion. He got a little bit of padding. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just been an amazing gift. So thank you, guys. Look forward to uh, our next milestone. We're going to go for 250. Then we're going to hit 500. And then we're going to hit a million. And we're going to continue growing. So uh, for those of you that are just joining us on YouTube, that only know us through YouTube, we have a podcast side of things. You can listen to the meaning making series that we're doing now and many other episodes, guided meditations, Wim Hof breathing. There's a lot of stuff there as well as uh, interviews and conversations with other people. Um, but I, I encourage you guys to check out those episodes. There's something in there for everybody and to look for more coming up as we go and, uh, and to subscribe here on YouTube because we're just really starting to put some energy into the YouTube side of things now. DJ's come along and, and helped the podcast a great deal like we would not have this nice setup here if it wasn't for dj and actually we got to give a, a shout out shout to, out to tv dave. to tv dave for uh letting us share the space over here where we were putting on this cast and a very nice soundboard and a very nice soundboard as well yeah we're not just running through it's meant little... for live sound but it does a great job yeah yeah so with the power of the Tascam, I'm sorry, not Tascam, with the UR22 Steinberg audio interface and the uh, mixing board there and uh, some cheap, cheap software and a computer that's still chugging along. We're somehow doing this thing. Hey, at least we got Sennheiser mics. We're fancy. Yeah, we got you know have decent mics. We're going to be upgrading these things eventually, you know. But the more of you guys that actually subscribe and like, the more money I can afford to put into the cast. Like, we are literally a couple of starving artists. We're in a band. Don't expect us to have a lot of money and to be putting on Lex Friedman, you know, level yet. quality podcasts yet. 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 But I do believe that we have the, the capacity. Other than we his have cameras the, being a lot better than ours and him having blackout cloth, I think we're doing pretty good. I think we're doing all right. Yeah. I think we're doing all right. And so, yeah, you know, thank you guys. And Hoot woot, 100,000. Yeah. yeah. Thank you all. And that's it. Yeah, let's let's jump in now. This is episode 23 of John Vervecki's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis on the subject of romanticism. Let's go. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time we took a look at uh, three pivotal figures. Both of the, two of them are in uh, dialogue with the central figure that we were talking about last time, and that's René Descartes. And we took a look at the debate between Descartes and Hobbes and uh, how that is uh, so current and relevant to us today in the debate around 
um, the possible creation of strong AI and what that means both scientifically and existentially to us. And we then took a look at what comes out of Descartes' response to Hobbes. If you remember, Descartes builds a defense against Hobbes' proposal for a completely uh, materialistic uh, artificial intelligence computer uh, uh, model of the mind uh, in terms that are drawn very strictly and I think rigorously from this, the, the central insights of the scientific revolution. And that seems to save the human soul from the Hobbesian onslaught. But we then note we pay a really, really devastating price for the Cartesian defense. We have a radical disconnection between mind and body, which is radical because of how embodied your experience of yourself and your world is. A radical disconnection between mind and other minds uh, because you only have access to other minds through bodies and if there is no possible connection between mind and body, there is no way you can read other people's mental states off of their bodily behavior. And then we have the radical disconnection between mind and reality because Descartes gives us two competing models of how we get in touch with what's real. One is we track the mathematical and then that is of course was picked up by positivism and people who advocate for science as our main access to reality. And then the other is the that cogito ergo sum, that all that's left of the contact with reality is the moment where the mind touches itself and we get this purely subjective notion of realness that's picked up by the romantic tradition and is also prevalent in our world today and we swing between the positivistic and the romantic notions of how we decide what's real in a completely unstable uh, fashion. We then noted that even your connection to yourself has been undermined because the Cartesian project is so radical in its withdrawal, it's so radical in its disconnection from mind, body, world, tradition, history, culture, that all the I is, that's in the cogito, all that is guaranteed to exist is this moment of self-awareness. So you end up with this completely atomic completely autobiographically empty self adrift in the terrifying infinite spaces that Pascal talked about. And we talked about Pascal's response to Descartes and how Pascal uh, was convinced that Descartes' attempts, and Pascal was right about this, Descartes' attempts to try and deal with the anxiety of the scientific revolution by promoting a methodology of searching for certainty would ultimately come to ruin. And of course they have come to ruin as we've said Instead, what Pascal pointed out is that we have lost all these other ways of knowing that were so central to the Axial Revolution. We have, all we have left is the spirit of geometry. We have lost the spirit of finesse. We have lost the procedural knowing, the perspectival knowing, and the participatory knowing that are so integral to the transformative experiences that have been central to our discussion of the Axial Age's legacy. And of course, Pascal himself had such a transformative experience and found the Cartesian framework incapable of addressing or articulating it. I'd like to now pick up on what comes after Descartes because I foreshadowed at the end of our last episode that we are in a t quite significant situation. Uh, we are radically disconnected from ourselves, 
both our, our own bodies and our own minds, from other people, from the world, from history, from culture, uh, from uh, sapiential institutions, from traditions of transformation. We are radically isolated and bereft, and yet we face these tremendous crises, ecological crisis, socioeconomic crisis, political crisis, mental health crisis. They're all interlocking, and we face it, and they're, and they're so exigent and so pervasive and so profound and so complex that we need a fundamental transformation in consciousness, cognition, character, community in order to really restructure our sense of who and what we are and our relationship to the world in order to address these crises. Now, the, the, the systematic set of psychotechnologies that have brought about such radical transformations in the past have been religion. And yet, part of the heritage of Descartes and the scientific revolution and the ongoing fragmentation that has followed from the Protestant Reformation is an increasing secularization of the world. That's, that's a little too simplistic. I mean, it's, it's, it's bifurcated. You get the increasing secularization on one hand and then the increasing attempt to nostalgically retreat to a pre-scientific model uh, in various forms of fundamentalism, which of course uh, is doomed uh, ultimately to a complete kind of failure. But we, this is happening such that for many of us, a return to religion in order to provide the multi-level, multivariate, complex transformation that is needed to meet the crises that we are facing is not available to us precisely because we are post-religious or we are myopically entrenched within a pre-scientific model of the revolution, scientific revolution, that will in no way avail us with what we need in order to address these crises. So either way you want to turn, uh, the religious option is not a viable one. What I want to now explore is why a secular solution for many people also no longer seems viable. So what I want to argue is that we face this hard problem of needing a religion that is no religion but cannot be fully secular but we don't want it to be religious and it is filled with all this paradoxical tension and contradiction that I've tried to argue is the hallmark of the Cartesian legacy. The way I want to argue that is to try and show the responses to the meaning crisis that come after Descartes. And I'm going to talk about them in terms of the pseudo-religious ideologies and how we have been traumatized by our interest and bewitchment by these ideologies precisely because these ideologies have led to titanic warfare and genocidal <laughs> bloodshed. And so we're trapped between we can't return to religion and we can't move to its political secular alternatives because of the trauma that has been inflicted by their history. And so we are stuck. Right? There is no political solution to quote the police and yet we also are not willing to return to a nostalgic and therefore impotent religious framework. So we sit trapped. So how did that arise? So, again, we have to move r r rapidly. Uh, and, and, I mean, 
I don't want to trespass on your time. This video series is already long, but we're moving through titanic figures here, and, and I, it always is, I feel, a difficult thing to do. But I, I want to talk about the figure of Kant, and we'll talk about Kant in a couple places, so I need to introduce him here anyways. So Kant is trying to deal with this fracturing in realness that Descartes has left. Right? And the, 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 the two sides, the inner subjective mind touching itself and the outer mathematical. And Kant brings up a question that is very important, um, and there's been other people who have given voice to this, and this is an, imp an important one, which is, how is it how is it that math is so good at describing reality? Why just accept Galileo's claim that it's the language of the universe? We have, we no longer, see, at one point, we had an answer to why math is so descriptive of reality. We had the Neoplatonic answer, the idea that reality is ultimately grounded in intelligible form, and those intelligible forms, you remember the IDOS, the structural functional organizations, are ultimately abstract, eternal, etc., and that's the ultimate grounding. That's why many people who are realists in mathematics formally and explicitly label themselves as Platonists, because that is a way of trying to explain how mathematics gives you access to reality when it is nothing like spatio-temporal material reality. I mean, why is it that something like math describes physics so well? And, and what Kant was really trying to get at is, how do I get those two sides of Descartes together? How do I get the side that says math is real, uh, but all I have, math gives me access to reality, but all I really have is access to my own mind? How, how do I get those together? And Kant comes up with a, a really radical proposal. Um, he calls it a Copernican revolution. He thinks it's as important as Copernicus' revolution of the external world. And the Kantian proposal is a, is a very interesting one. Because what I think it does is, is it really radicalizes things even more. So Kant's proposal is, these categories, these patterns of intelligibility we find in the world, the mathematical properties, aren't actually there. Not in uh, the sense we think they are. So what Kant does is he basically makes use of a move that Occam made. If you remember, Occam's razor, Remember, I often say people don't understand what they're invoking when they invoke Occam's razor. Occam's razor basically says that all these patterns of intelligibility you think are in the world are actually in your mind. Right? What, what Kant does is says, well, these, these ways of measuring the world mathematically, they aren't the features of the world, they are the way in which experience has to be organized in order to make sense to the mind. So let me try and give you an analogy for understanding that, right? So I'm going to do a reverse on the analogy you see me use when we were talking about Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, right? So let's do it the other way around. The world is very blurry. There's too much. And so what I have to do is I have to filter it. I have to filter it so that it will fit my eye 
and my brain and I can make sense of it. So these filters have to be put into place. And so Kant's idea was there are structures in the mind that basically act as these filtering frames. It's kind of both a combination of a filter and a frame. And what they do is they impose a structure of intelligibility on experience. So this is opposite to the Platonic. This is why it's a, a Copernican revolution. It's a complete reversal of the Platonic model. So the idea is I'm not discovering the patterns of intelligibility that structurally, functionally organize the world. What's actually happening is this, right, this pattern is being imposed on the information coming in so that it will fit my mind and make sense to my mind. And that's the basis of my capacity for reasoning about the world. I can reason about the world not because the world is ultimately rationally structured, but like Occam said, the world is a, in, absurd in itself. I can reason about the world because I have filtered it in such a way that my mind can process it according to its own internal grammar. So see how this is? This is why it's a Copernican reversal. I'm not discovering in the world the mathematical properties of things. My mind is filtering and imposing a structure on them so that it can make sense and think about them. So you have to take this word and this phrase and make it really, really strong. Your mind is making sense of things. And it's going to, as we, when we talk about relevance, we're going to see that there's a deep way in which Kant is, I think, right. And you say, okay, so yeah, I see how he's, he's sort of in, completely inverting the world from Plato. I get that. Right? So math isn't discovering reality. Math is ultimately about how the mind imposes a structure on reality so it can reason about it. Great. All right. What does that mean? Well, notice we've got now the mind. Remember we talked about this model of the contact with the world being withdrawn and it's being withdrawn inside the mind by Luther and then it's being withdrawn really by Descartes. Now not only is it withdrawn, it's imprisoned. The mind is in here and all they can get in here always has to pass through this filtering frame. And for Kant, that means we can never know the world as it is in itself. As he famously said, the thing in itself. We can never know the world as it is. <coughs> this is why, of course, the Cartesian search for certainty is going to be completely undermined. So ultimately, notice how this is all coming together. The mind is ultimately only really touching itself. It has no contact now with the world. It's not only withdrawn from the world, it's isolated and trapped within itself. But it does answer the question, well, why does math work so well? Well, math works so well, according to Kant, because 
That's the grammar of how our minds operate. That's why math, which seems such a mental and abstract and weird thing, seems to make the world, seems to give us access to the structure of the world. It's not really giving us structure to the access of the world. It's creating a structure in the world of experience that is, makes sense to human beings. Okay, we're back. Okay, well, we'll do this quick then. <laughs> Fundamentalism rejects science. Um, yeah. The return back into this religious state isn't going to work. Um, yeah. Or being overly secularistic is not going to work. And because yeah. and pseudo-religious ideologies aren't going to work. Yeah, and we've but, tried this. The world is increasingly bifurcated, and we're trying to yeah. be either overly materialistic and scientific to try and understand and get a grasp of reality, or we're being too literalistic yeah. with our religion and fundamentalist. So, so a return to the traditional way that we perform religion is not going to work. And this is what Kant is, or yeah. Verveke is now recognizing, is that we get tribalistic with our religions. We separate and we break off and we get into ideolog ideological certainty. And in fact, we know this because in the last couple hundred years, last two centuries, we formed a bunch of pseudo-religious ideologies and tried them out. And we have immense trauma from that experience because of the mass genocide that occurred as a result of uh, socialism and Marxism and fascism. And so these pseudo-religious ideologies do not help us either. Yeah. So what do we do in this, in, in this situation? We need a fundamental transformation of the way that we relate with reality. Yeah, and We're in a crisis of many interlocking pervasive complex challenges and so we're introduced to kant and he's yeah. trying to deal with the fracturing of realness that yeah. Descartes left us with between mind and matter yeah. um and reminded of seeing stinging there is and, no political solution so why accept math as the language of the universe yeah um which used to be the case with yeah. but in the sense of eidos yeah everything um, had a sacred ultimate underlying form yeah. in the neoplatonic worldview so so this was how math actually did give us access to reality in a way that didn't disconnect us yeah. from it or our, our sense of interconnection with the world and co-creation with it um so kant's proposing his copernican revolution and now and it's a flip of plato and neoplatonism he's saying that these patterns of intelligibility are not actually there you know what, what we're measuring in the world are not measurements of reality it's just how our mind makes intelligible what it can filter. We're measuring the way our mind patterns things to make them intelligible. Yeah, and we're introduced yeah. to the term filtering frames, which is yep. an imposed structure that our, our mind oppose, imposes onto the world. To make it sensical to our minds. Yeah, yeah. and so it's not... It's not math is the language of the the universe. It's math is the language of the mind in which we come to grasp with what the universe is. Yeah, yeah. The which, math is not out there in the universe. It's a, a way our mind patterns and makes sense. So the so we can never actually know reality. Then yeah. we can own, the mind is only ever touching itself. And so and so even though we've become increasingly accurate in our capacity to inter interact with the material world, we find ourselves feeling increasingly disconnected from relationship with reality it, it feels increasingly meaningless it's void of meaning and reason and we feel increasingly unstable without a home and this is of course yeah. the seeds for nihilism so now the mind feels imprisoned basically yeah. and uh math only works because it's the grammar yeah. of our minds yeah work. that's why the math yeah. works well that's why we're seeing like, oh, you know, we can break everything down into math. It's like, well, the underlying of everything is 
we'll never be able to experience that. All we can experience is the own filtering structures that our brain has and the way yeah. our brain communicates with itself. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a big old long spiel before then, but we were on the wrong screen, but that basically sums <sighs> it up. It's actually pretty good. We should pretend every break's like that because we went yeah, right no, through the right? notes. Because yeah, I feel like, <laughs> oh man, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to be able to do what we just did? We had so many good points and everything and I think we actually just flew through it. Yep. We didn't get quite as wordy and we didn't go on as many long tangents. I think we had maybe a couple of good tangents there, but hey, it's, it's lost into the mist and, and you guys got the gist. <laughs> so, I'm going to rhyme my way out of that one. I can't believe I did that. Yeah, I left it on the screen. I left it on Verveki after I paused it and meant to move it back to our screen here. This is why, uh, if there's anybody out there that lives close by, a friend or a family member, um, anyone out there that would be interested in helping us run the show, you you can actually become a part of the show too if you're interested in the subject matter. Or you can sit in the background and you can just press the buttons. It'd be very helpful to have somebody in the background helping us uh, because there'll be less... Less uh, live mistakes like yeah. I tend to make. It's, yeah, we'll figure it out eventually. Yeah, you know, we're learning as we go. You know, yeah. I've been an audio podcast guy for a while, and now we're trying to do this video thing. And yeah, speaking of guys, thank you again for helping us get so many listens on the podcast, and let's grow the YouTube side of things. Now, if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple or wherever you like to listen, get on to YouTube and find Actual Live Podcast. Like and subscribe. We would love to have you here with us. We do these Wednesday live streams every Wednesday. Every week at 8 p.m. EST. All right. So now we are going to officially jump back in. And yeah, that's it. Let's go. Right. That's a really big price to pay. The price you pay for getting the two sides of Descartes back together is to get them both inside the mind and to be radically, radically out of touch with the world now. So you can imagine that people are... Uh, upset with this. This is a, a, uh, a, a very challenging idea. There's, and there's, there's going to be some really important responses to this. Uh, there's going to be the Romantics and Hegel, uh, but I want to concentrate on the Romantic solution because I've already mentioned it, and we'll talk a little bit about Hegel when we uh, talk about Marx. So, there's an idea here, right, it's sort of implicit in Kant, right? There's an idea of, right, information coming in from the world, right? So in, I, I've, the, the problem with this diagram is it's too simplistic. So think of the filter as had a, having sort of levels of processing, right? There's the raw information from the thing in itself, and it's getting processed, it's coming in, right? And then, right, and then there's all of this structure being imposed on it. Now this, by the way, is the most prevalent model in most of cognitive psychology and cognitive science. Where you see this Kantian grammar of trying to understand the mind is in current contrast between bottom-up processing versus top-down. So the idea of bottom-up processing, we talked about this when we talked about attention, right, is this is this is processing that starts in perception and moves towards cognition. Top-down is processing that starts in cognition, starts from your knowledge, and moves down into perception. Remember, we talked about this when we talked about how you do, how you do this, right? The cat, right? You see this is an H and this is an A. And how do you do that? Well, you use the knowledge of the word 
to disambiguate the letters, and you use the knowledge of the letters to construct the word, and the two are completely interpenetrating in a completely self-organizing manner outside of your cognitive awareness. It actually makes your uh, reading possible for you. It's a condition on the possibility of you reading. And so, right, this is the same model here. The mind is imposing a structure, and it's filtering and framing and structuring the information coming in from the world. So this Kantian model is pervasive through all of cognitive science, and for good reason. It turns out to be a very, very powerful way of looking at things. But as I move this way, as I move into the mind, right, as I get inside the framework, my cognition, of course, becomes more and more rational becomes more and more mathematically, logically intelligible. But think about it. Notice you've got this weird idea now. As my processing becomes more rational, more logically mathematical, I'm actually getting farther and farther away from being in contact with the world. Now, isn't that a... See, notice the platonic inversion, the, the platonic, right, reversion like a complete reversal of the platonic structure, is bringing with it a reverse consequence. So for Plato, as you pursue rationality, you move deeper and deeper into reality. But for Kant, right, notice as I move more and more into rationality, I'm moving away from being in contact with reality. Now, what comes to mind is well, isn't the opposite then the case? And think about how this is going to make Freud and Jung possible. I mean, you know how you get Carl Jung? Take Kant. If you don't know Kant, stop talking about Jung. Because Jung repeatedly tells his readers, I'm a neo-Kantian. I'm through and through a Kantian. He tells you that repeatedly. And so if you don't know Kant, Shut up about Jung, because you're not understanding Jung properly. The way you get Jung is you take Kant, and you take Kant's epistemology, and you add it to Gnostic mythology, and that's how you get, that's the equation for Jung. So why do I say this? Well, think about this, because if I go the other way, if I open the mind up to these more irrational, less fully processed parts of cognition, the boundary between the conscious and the unconscious aspects of my experience. As I move into the, right, the imaginary, irrational, dreamlike aspects of my cognition, I'm going to lose rationality, but notice what I'm gaining. I'm gaining back that lost contact with the world. Latchman talks about this in a really good book called The Lost Knowledge of the Imagination. Right? And so, I think this is a misunderstanding. But notice what's going on here. And, and this, is, this is why my attitude towards the Romantics is so ambivalent. They're picking up on Pascal. They're trying to recapture the lost perspectival, participatory right, knowledge, the actual involved contact with reality. But because they're inside this Kantian framework, the way that's going to happen is by moving into right, the depths of the irrational aspects of the mind, because those are the parts of the mind that are closer to reality. And so, 
of course, what Jung and Freud are going to do is they're going to take that, what the Romantics do about how to reach out into the world, and they're going to make it, well, at least for Freud, it's completely reaching down into the psyche. For Jung, it's reaching down into the psyche and back out into the world. We'll come back to that later. So this, this is the main idea of Romanticism. Romanticism ultimately isn't about loving your sexual partner in a particular way. It's the idea that we can recapture contact with reality by moving away from the rational layers of cognition and into the irrational layers. Why does that get associated with love? Because, remember, in the Neoplatonic tradition, with the Romantics in this twisted way are trying to get back to, they're trying to get back to Gnosis and participatory knowing, in that Platonic tradition, the quintessential form of participatory perspectival knowing is love. The Romantics have, they get that, they're remembering that. So, we move into the irrational and we'll regain contact and of course that that relationship to the world where we're actually in touch with the other and there's mutual disclosure between myself and the other, that's love. And so the romantic return to reality through irrationality gets connected with love and that's how we get romantic love and we get the idea of it as a fundamentally irrational force, right? And you get romanticism. And then you get the idea that, well, what is the faculty that stands between perception and reason. What's here's perception here, the part where the thing in itself, the world, and here's reason up here. What's the faculty in between the mathematically intelligible and the sensuously experienced, right? Well, it's imagination. Imagination is where the mind initially imposes that order on the, the raw data of experience. See, for us, and the Romantics were very critical of this, and, the, and this is something that they were right about, we understand the imagination just as moving mental images around in our head. And the, and the Romantics made a big distinction between imagination and that faculty, which they called fancy, right? Or like phantasm, right? No, no, for them, imagination, right, is how the mind imposes structure on raw data so that it becomes available to reason. And so the imagination is the place in which we can get closer outside of reason to the access to reality. So music and art are going to be understood as giving us access through the imagination to what's real. Why? Because music and art are where the mind seems to be imposing an order in such a way that meaning is made that we can then rationally reflect upon. So you're getting, you're getting two views now, right, that are coming into opposition. One, the older view, represented by the Enlightenment, I mean that in the scientific sense, not the Buddhist Enlightenment, people like John Locke. The, the mind is an empty canvas and sense experience comes in and writes on it. Right? That's empiricism. 
So the mind is a blank slate. The Romantics have exactly the opposite view. We don't actually ever know what the world is in and of itself. The world is an empty canvas on which imagination expresses, presses itself out. This is why expression is so important to the Romantics. To press yourself, to press out. The mind, in imagination, presses itself onto the world. And of course, that's where Jung and Freud are going to get the notion of projecting onto the world from. So you have these two, and that's why the Romantics see themselves in deep competition with the empiricists, who of course are part of what becomes known as the scientific model. So what's going on here is these two views. The mind is a blank slate upon which the world impresses itself. Locke uses the term impressions. The world impresses itself on your mind. Or the romantics. No, no. The world is a blank canvas upon which the mind expresses itself. And both are wrong. I mean, I, I very rarely just sort of state things. But I'm really confident of this. Both of these models, the mind of a blank slate, is just overwhelmingly wrong. Way too much argument and evidence against it. And this model of the world as a blank slate that we merely express ourselves onto is also wrong. But what we get is we get this weird new thing. Everybody is swept up in Romanticism. See, Romanticism is, becomes a pan-European movement. It's a movement of the arts. It's a movement in literature. Goethe writes The Sorrows of Young Werther. You have people like Beethoven bringing in right, a romantic element to music. Right? You have lots of romantic poetry. You know, think of Blake, think of Woodsworth. So you have this movement. It gets taken up into religion by Schleiermacher as a way of trying to understand religion. It's a pan-European movement. Right? And it does, or it, oh, it's hard to be fair to this, but at least, uh, at least it appears to do what religion used to do. It integrates music and art and literature and the project of trying to find and make meaning in the scientific worldview by giving you this whole framework of how you regain contact with reality one of the hallmarks of the religious quest. You're going to regain contact with reality by moving into the world of the imagination, world, making use of art and music and poetry and literature, all of the machinery, we'll talk about this later, of religion. And what it's going to do is irrationally take you into contact with reality. So Romanticism is the first and it is the godfather, godmother of all the pseudo-religious ideologies. Okay? It looks like, behaves like, and, and, and performs a kind of massive transformation on culture and cognition and consciousness. <clears throat> and people start experimenting with altered states of consciousness precisely because of all of this uh, all of this way of thinking. This is why Freud is going to take a look at hypnosis, etc. Um, altered states of consciousness, be, you know, it's um, people are uh, taking various drugs, right, Coolidge and others. There's all of this experimentation precisely because of this way of looking at things. But what it does, 
right? You, you're paying a really devastating price for this pseudo-religious ideology of romanticism, right? And, we and, and if you think that romanticism is not alive in our culture, you're not paying attention to the fact that we still understand and use the grammar of romanticism to talk about love. And we even buy into, at least for periods of time, a romantic model of how love operates. Romantic comedies are these weird metaphysical perversions in which we throw away the scientific model of things and believe that somehow love is this irrational force that brings us in contact with the course of history, at least our own personal history and destiny, and that of another person. And it's all so much bullshit, right? And it's devastatingly bad bullshit because you are still trapped where Luther and Descartes left you. You're still trapped inside your mind, not really in touch with things. And the only way you get in touch with them is by thinking and behaving irrationally. You are trying to make this machinery of the imagination carry all of the Neoplatonic weight that religion and tradition and philosophy and history carried. You try to make your romantic partner take the role of all of that. No person can bear that. No human relationship can bear that burden. So we go into our romantic relationships with unreachable expectations of how the person is going to address everything that we've lost in our history, and of course they can't. Which of course is why many people simultaneously say that ro you know, their romantic relationships are the things where they find or look for the most meaning in their life, and their romantic relationships are those things that have precisely caused them the most trauma and suffering in their life. <clears throat> so, these pseudo-religious ideologies are really, really important because they point to an attempt to try and get into words, <laughs> try to get into words, to propositions, into ideological ways of thinking, everything that religions used to do for us. Because the problem with the Romantics, right? see, the Romantics get this in one way, right? They, they get that the language can't do it all, and that's why they turn to poetry, right? To see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, to see infinity in the palm of your hand and spend eternity in an hour. There's Blake trying to use imagery to point to a transformative experience, a mystical experience. But you see, the problem is, if you don't have any sapiental traditions, if you don't have the spiritual exercises that Hado talks about, if you don't have the systematic set of psychotechnologies, if you do not have regular and reliable methods and guides for these transformative experiences, all you have, in the end, are the words. And if you're not Blake, if you're not Coolidge, when you read the poem, you don't, I mean, even if you can appreciate how great a poem it is, you're not capable of getting 
much from it because everything has been reduced to the words. See, the Romantics didn't give us anything else. They don't give us practices. They don't give us institutions. They don't give us sets, systematic sets of psychotechnologies. They give us promises, they give us images, and they give us words. It's a pseudo-religious ideology. So it sweeps the continent. Okay, we're back. Moving along. <clears throat> Getting intense, isn't it? Yep, so... Uh up levels of processing there's the top-down um look into the levels of processing and that's reverting into the mind mm -hmm. further into uh the rational yeah. which uh paradoxically speaking actually takes you further away from the world and then there's the bottom up coming out of the mind the irrational which seems to bring you closer to the world at least in this idea mm -hmm. um and neither of these work Mm -hmm. It seems we've tried both of these. Yeah, and neither he, of them work. He mentioned Kant plus Gnosticism is young. So mm -hmm. when, we get to, when we get to young, let's remember that. Yeah. So so with Plato, with the Neoplatonic idea of reality and how the mind relates with it, and how math is actually represented in the underlying substratum of reality, like there's these primordial versions of every object, like. There's the ultimate triangle. There's the ultimate tree from which the shape for all tree for, for all trees in reality are born. These, mm -hmm. you know, these transcendent objects, Neoplatonic objects, um, that puts us into deeper relation with reality when we see see it this way. When we have this kind of existential mode with Kant, we're moving out of relationship with reality. Um, so yeah, yeah, like you were saying, Jung uh, or Jung, depending on how you pronounce it, is a neo-Kantian. Uh, he takes Kant's epistemology and then this Gnostic approach to reality and brings them together um, and recognizes that as we move into a more dreamlike, imaginatory state, you, you get less rational or maybe pre-rational, but you get more in contact with reality. And we're trying to pick that back up and have a, that deep relation with reality that we used to. But we're falling into irrational, irrationality as a result, aren't we? With romanticism, the idea that we can, we can contact re reality and have this relation with it through the imaginal, through the pre-rational mode. Yeah, which Im imagination is the faculty between perception and reason at mm -hmm. least from the romantics point of view yeah and imagine is an imposed order on raw basically raw existence or raw data to become and to hopefully to bring us into better contact with reality and we're doing it in ways like music and art because um, music and art is quite literally the mind imposing through imagination order onto the world you know, yeah. quite literally, you're ordering it. You have different techniques. Like, say, if you're an artist, you have, you know, different mediums, different techniques in which you work in, different symbology that you use to get messages across. In music, you're literally using sound to mm -hmm. change a perspective to, you know, tell a story. Yeah, so in this, in this sense, and when Kant talks about imagination, he's talking about not as in fancy or fantasy, but how the mind orders the raw 
sensory yeah. input of yeah. the data that, that comes into our minds to make it accessible for reason. Yeah, it's not that, so, yeah, the music. fanciful sense of imagination, like, oh, you know, I'm imagining myself, I don't know, like as kids play and stuff like that, but more, you know, like actual yeah. um, uh, ordering the raw data of the universe. Yeah, um, it's like say, say you have a goal and you start thinking yeah. about how you're going to fulfill that goal. That's yeah. using imagination yeah. as the way that they saw imagination, yeah. um, not, not just the fantasy side of it. Yeah. So now romanticists are basically looking to music and art as yeah. a way to get closer to what's yeah. real. Um, yeah. You know, to, to, to recognize how meaning is made so we can reflect upon it. So now we're looking at these ways of getting in there. So you have the empiricists during the enlightenment. Well, before we get to that, so there's, okay. there's two views yes, on yes, this, yes. that the mind is an empty canvas. Yes. That's basically oh, yeah. that, that is written on by the world. Mm-hmm. Or the second is the world is an empty canvas that then the mind expresses itself within. Yes. And uh, Verveke's argument is that both of them are wrong. Um, yes, that's exactly what, what I was getting at. Yeah, the yeah, empiricist, okay. the mind is a blank state upon, upon which the world impresses. The romanticist saw the world as an empty canvas upon which okay. our imagination is impressing okay. itself. And wow, what a switch there. So... Both, and, and Verveke does say that he, he disagrees with both these guys, He's, and he also points out he doesn't like to make certain statements like this. This is one mm. of the times he's going to, though, because um, he feels pretty certain, pretty strongly about this one, you could say. Yeah. Um, well, quite obviously, the world isn't just this blank slate. It was here before we were, before yeah. we had minds to think about yeah. changing it. And, and we know through genetics also, through yeah. evolution. You know, the environment does affect us. Yeah. And also the, the argument that the mind is just a blank state slate as well. That's not entirely true either. We're very impressionable, mm-hmm. but the mind still does its own thing. Yes. Um, yes. And it does have some dispositions that can be there from the time of birth that are handed down. Sure. Yeah. Dispos- psychological dispositions. Um, you know, if you don't develop the mind properly, then yes, it can be damaged. Mm-hmm. But also, well, if you don't exist within the world properly either, you could be damaged or the world can be damaged as well. Um, yeah. 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 And, and romanticism just explodes across Europe at this point in history, because it does seem to fulfill a lot of the things that people went to religion before, for before. So it becomes this pan European movement. It's integrated music, art, literature, philosophy It's given us a framework to, to gain contact with reality. So it has all of the machinery of religion and it has what, what we think is going to get us where we need to be. Um, but now we're starting to see how romanticism was actually like the godfather of all the pseudo religious ideologies yeah. that came after and there's a that pr- we are now suffering and there's from a price to pay f- there's a price to pay for getting yourself into these ideologies first off you're exposed to a bunch of bullshit yep and that's the uh that's the actual term not just saying that's it. the that's technical the term technical term yeah that we can um, bullshit ourselves and, and as opposed to lie to ourselves these ideologies yeah. don't untrap you from this this filtering box that you have around that is always between your mind and the world experience happening it doesn't untrap you it gives you nothing no. to get yourself no. out of that yeah it seals us even tighter into that prison and, fact, and you know. it doesn't give you the strength that it, it doesn't get you the strength to get out of this conundrum that we're in in the first place no. between the you know separation of the mind and the body or the universe yeah um and then we end up putting that stuckness onto our partners yes our romantic partners and you know this this idea that 
you should be completely fulfilled and you know your problems should be handled by your partner and you know all these yeah if you find the intellectual right partner, spiritual then, then you have your meaning yeah in life. yeah yeah exactly you know? it's like and nah that's too much to put on any other person that is, it's almost too much to put on yourself that's why but, that's why the the ideal of it is an interdependent relationship rather than a codependent yeah. relationship where you're looking for your happiness and your mate and your fulfillment no. and your mate if you already have your happiness and you find your meaning within then you are independently healthy then you can be in an interdependent relationship yeah. where you're not dependent on each other. You're actually inter, um, upgrading each other. You could say, well, you know, uh, you're, you're um, both independent, but you're choosing to be together because you're even better together than you are apart. Kind yeah. of thing. But you're not getting your happiness from yeah. the other person. You're independently happy. You're with them because you celebrate who they are and you love them that much that you want to have life with them. Yeah. So ideology is propositional, much mm-hmm. like the Protestant uh, view of religion. You know, there's this, proposition the proposition is you're nothing and if you're lucky enough then you'll get the grace of god you know yeah we're back in the propositional um, mode here again and so we're trying to make romanticism carry all the weight of what religion tradition yeah in our relationships yeah. in our cultures societies gave us before these are unreasonable expectations to yeah. to put on uh romantic ideals alone but of course strongly held ideals certainly do become ideologies so we have these pseudo religious they're not truly religious but they're cultic cultish in in their ways um that that are trying to put into words and proclamations all the things that religion used to do for us before and And so yeah using poetry imagery yeah and since they don't have the wisdom and the yes the the transformative processes and yes and the they sapiential point, yeah. community around you, all they're left with is the words. And since they're trying to talk about something that can't be directly talked about, they'll give you flowery poems. Yeah, and but the flowery if, poems are good because they can point to the transcendent, but what we're lacking nowadays is a way well, to actually you're take not, that you're not recognition in, and turn it into actionable wisdom. If you're, not intro- if you're not initiated into this process of you know upward thought and transformation and, yeah. you know, then the words are just words and they just sound cool. And, and unless you're... They might give you a little bit of hope yeah. in that moment. They might give you a little bit of help and a little bit of insight, but they're not going to help you actually tune yourself to yeah. reality consistently in a deeper way like the old wisdom schools did. Yeah. That's for sure. Like, of course, because we love music. It yeah. gives us these transcendent feelings. It's incredible how powerful music and poetry and art are. They certainly are life-fulfilling. They instill us with wisdom and insight, but it's not... S- deeply interwoven in our lives and our culture in a way that we're living spiritual relation in, in a spiritual relation with reality already and then we're enjoying this poetry while being in spiritual relation it's actually the poetry and the music is trying to remind us of our spiritual yeah. relation so that there, it's a disconnect that's happened but it could, and we're it, trying to get back there through the arts and we're it's it's not under, quite it's doing it understandable because, though because like when if you take somebody to like a, a um an art museum and you look at you know some type of enlightenment era painting or something like that your average person is be like well it's pretty you know that's a nice view of the market and people going around and all that but like somebody who says initiated into the thought you know like the the techniques, the schooling, you know, the school of thought, if you will, that mm-hmm. these artists are participating in, um, then they can break it down. And it's like, well, you notice like how this person's hand is, is, is placed in this other person in this relationship happening in this corner here. They can explain what the story is within it. Just like a good poem, you yeah. know, that one poem, you just know. imagine if we were all like a part of the tradition of knowing that, yeah. and then we're interacting with yeah. art and music and we, and we were informed on, 
how these different artistic things come to be. Um, and I, I guess the, the bane of the romantic period is it was more about the words, kind of like the split between um, the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. The Orthodox Church was more about the process and moving through the participation, yeah. whereas the Catholic, what ended up being the Catholic Church was more about the words and the um, the proclamations and the set canon of yes. this is what this yes. is what this means and this is the story and this is what this word means. And, and since they were competing means. with li- li- with scientific materialism, yeah. that was very exacting and precise. They started to become literalists in their interpretation of the scripture rather than recognizing these deep metaphors as allegories yeah. for how to live. And of course, we still kind of know that we do know that subconsciously, but we're we're really much more hung up on the proclamations than on how to live. We're really not trying to live this religious life seven days a week, 24-7. Very few people are, are really trying to do that. They're, you know, they do it on Sundays, maybe if they go to church on Sundays and when they remember, you know, but it's it's not as deeply interwoven a part of our life. Well, I guess at least it's, the art, it's, can you quote, like... Art's expression of the sacred ideals. There's a difference between qu- quoting, being able to quote stri- scripture and you have the words fine and then being able to see the underlying message of what that story was trying to tell. Yes. Like that's the difference. You've got the the words, which, you know, you can memorize the words and everything. And, you know, I've talked scripture with pe- people who are way better at quoting scripture than me. I'm more of a gist guy, you know. I get the gestalt and, you know, like how it all works. But it it's it's interesting because I find, you know, there there are people that are really good at quoting the scripture, but what they're getting out of it is like, well, this happens, so don't do that or else this is, you know, like... You know, I don't know the the whoever is going to come kicking down your door and whatever. And it's more like, you know, no, actually, the lesson was deeper than that. You know, like the whole, you know, Mary was going to be stoned to death because she was pregnant and she wasn't married to her husband. The, the lesson isn't don't have sex out of wedlock because you're going to get stoned to death. It's like we used to do this. And isn't it a good thing that somebody stood up and was like, let's not cast these stones because well then if they would have cast the stones they would have killed the savior of mankind if you will mm. you know yeah. so you know it's reading the words for the word's sake opposed to trying to read into what the what was trying to be said either by the individual or by the practice and to live itself. according to it yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that we don't have the wisdom schools to help us mm-hmm. learn how to imbue our lives with this way of being anymore we can only celebrate the art that points the sacred when we see it, mm-hmm. but it's 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 not good for keeping us in relationship with the sacred. You do need some kind of wisdom tradition for that, with fellowship and feedback and guidance. You know. Yeah, and I would say it's like here's a good example. Because it's hard it's, to be good. You know, we the, are fallible beings. There's that art that we all like. You know, that like you know has sacred geometry in it and stuff like that. Mm. I mean, it's just like oh, it's so spiritual. But you ask the person, you know, like, and this isn't all of them, but you know, no, no, yeah. some of them are very deeply but spiritually then there's, profound. But people. then there's some. It's yes. just like, well, you know, I use these shapes because this is the seed of life, and I'm trying to you know get that point across. But it's like that's as deep as it goes. That's about as deep as so it goes. So there's yeah. this calling to want to understand yeah. it, but just using the shapes and using the words and using the things isn't enough. Yeah, no, it's not a, you yeah, know. just because you know it points to something real and that there's something there, but we're not really committing to living up to the thing yeah. that we intimate is there. Yeah, so that's it's, like... It's, it's kind of off in the distance and you don't have to totally stay true to it because you're not sure about it. That's kind of the place a human's in right now with God and yeah. it's... We're holding ourselves back from 
from living our birthright, perhaps, and becoming active agents of an awakening cosmos. Well, you know, nowadays you can be spiritual all you want, but don't you talk about God. Yeah. <laughs> this keeps bringing me back. It's crazy because the synchronicity between the subject matter in this episode and the conversation between uh, Russell Brand um, that I was telling you about earlier, um, I'm telling you guys about earlier with, um, oh, what's his name? I just lost train of thought. Um, black gentleman. Um, Looks like a better looking Don King with that hair. Yes, yes, yes. Huge hair. Cornell West. Cornell West. It came back to me before I even saw it. Yeah, Cornell. Uh, they were talking about this very subject about um, how to how to be able to learn to live as a prophet in the world rather than just proselytize. And so it's, uh, you know, that's what we're doing right now. We're proclaiming, but we have to become the prophets that we seek yeah. ourselves. The change that we seek in this world has to come from within. Well, there's no point in just yelling. You're, yeah. you're all sinners and you're all going to go to hell. It's like, well, what what is sin and what is hell? And then because, othering one another into yeah, groups. Like, and like the can, chosen, can you just yeah. tell me what your words mean Accepted and what exactly and, they are and why I wouldn't want to be? And yeah. maybe yeah, the, These are the just, people that we should, you know, right. you know, repel and shun. Yeah, right. You know, that this, this certainty is so, so dangerous. This kind of ideological certainty where we get into these group mob, mob minds and we're not reflecting and we're not trying to understand the other side anymore. We just have blanket generalizing terms for them now. Well, and even blanket generalizing terms for ourselves too. And yeah. for, for concepts, you know, like the, the quote unquote woke lexicon is the same words we use, but they have, they have the meaning we think, but then there's also another meaning, but then there's also some other meaning that's t- tied to the it. Destruction of and it, it, and it, it is just used to confuse. And yes, you just say the words and you don't really have to know about yeah. the meaning unless you, as long as you just say the words, Yeah, the rewriting of as language, long as you it's do all the work incredibly or, Orwellian. Yeah. It's the way it's, it's going. Very, and well, if you have a good memory of 1984 by George Orwell, fantastic book. And actually the, 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 what was it? Two movies. The, I guess the most recent one that they did, the non-black and white one, is actually freaking fantastic. It's really, really well done. Very, yeah. very, very well done. It is worth watching. It's worth reading the books, but I think that one is pretty, it pretty true to the spirit of the book yeah. and the feeling of it so well. Yeah, yeah. and when he has the it. elation of having that affair with that uh, the one woman who's like. Mm-hmm. Basically, like you know, Hitler Youth or whatever equivalent, you know, is like yeah. adherent to the thing viciously. But then him and her get into a relationship, and it's beautiful while they're in it. But then it falls apart, and they fall right back down into it, and then it's back into the despair and the horribleness. It's like whoa, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you, you the, get to break out for gets, a moment. That there's this guy that he looks up to, that's like this revolutionary that kind of takes him in, and then like he trusts him, and he gets to know the guy, and then next thing you know. The guy's an agent of Big Brother the whole yeah. time. God. Or, or God. remember the scene where it's like they're sitting at the lunch table and, uh, you know, one of his coworkers comes down and it's like, I don't know what's in this meat, but it's double plus good, eh? You know? Or <laughs> double, double plus good. Yeah. Or they're and, excited that the price of chocolate rations has gone down, even though it's gone down from $12 last week to $14 this week kind of thing. Yeah, like they're yeah. constantly lying to themselves. They're, and his job is actually like literally rewriting yeah. history. Like he's constantly editing newspaper headlines and articles and changing yeah. them to reflect the current narrative. So much of that, uh, you know, that the othering that happens in that story, the, the, the how they use language in that story. That's one thing. That they're always monitored and watched and that you have to 
proclaim your virtue through you through the group that you identify with rather than in inner virtue mm -hmm. and, and well thought crime 1984 and, and how people read it is a really good example of this are you reading it for the words or for the meaning and wisdom under underneath of it because i know a lot of people it for something to that live according have to. read 1984 yeah. that are literally becoming ing sock yeah, yeah. and they'll still quote it music and movies mm and art just for mere sensory entertainment or are you going to it for meaning in such a way that you can engage with life more deeply and more meaningfully yeah you know and not just a meaning to suit your own goals either but like no no but coming into it open communally and, like, and individually yeah something that empowers both the individual and society at once a good story should break you at least once within it where you just go whoa yeah. like you know yeah. i was Shawshank so redemption style you yeah know? you know yeah. like really like really not just get you in the fields but get you in your mind thinking like you know qu questioning your own beliefs your mm -hmm. own ideas trying to or go like what really was being said yes. here and why did i have such a visceral response yes. to this why is this hitting me so deeply yeah. not just shows like, movies music that you yeah. feel like you grew from after experiencing you know that's the good stuff. if i want to make you feel happy warm feelings i'll show you pictures of kittens and puppies and if i want to make you feel bad feelings i'll show you pictures of puppies and kittens that are sick and injured you know it's not hard to get <laughs> no. you to get you in your feels no it's hard it's hard to do it properly to get people in their thanks and to think mm -hmm. and then you know to think about themselves thinking and then Challenge to garner the wisdom out That's of even it. harder. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Well, I probably the first part of an arts gaining wisdom now is is challenging our own preconceptions. Yeah. I think that's the going to be the cornerstone yeah. of it's modern like day wisdom. The urge of the artist is take this into life, yeah. and the consumer is just kind of taking it to consume for entertainment. Yeah. And we've got to get out of that just consuming yeah. for mere sensory gratification, for mere sensory pleasure. Well, and also just producing to be provocative. You know, because like filling this. It's tr we're trying to fill a void and it doesn't fill it and, and just doing it to be provocative yeah. too. What's just that to saying? Attention. It's of, again, it's ego. It's the separatist. What is that quote from a movie? It's like, but what engage. does it mean? It's not supposed to mean, it's provocative. It's not supposed to mean anything. It's just to provoke a, a response. Yeah, right, right. Um, but you know, like... Um, well, then you have a meaning inside your mind about trying to provoke a response for some reason. Yeah, well, I, it, I think it's like, you know, crapping on a canvas, smearing it around and calling it art. Yeah, okay, yeah. You did something somebody else didn't do before, but what do you mean by it? Are you talking about like the innate nature of man to, or the innate nature of man to uh, think so highly of themselves and get all snooty on things that they'll buy literally a piece of crap on, yeah. on a sheet and be like, oh, I'll pay so yeah, much they'll money smear for something on top of a blank sheet. Now, there are artists that actually do that, and that's the point, and that's pretty deep. Yeah. But then there's the imitators that are just like, I'm just going to do what the other person did, you know? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm going to take a picture of a can of fruit. That's what most artists end up being, sadly, nowadays, is emulate, like imitators and and emulating what other people have done. Well, actually, art, art throughout time has always been this but battle actually, between the creatives and it's the imitators. How, yeah, it's how far away from that. And, Cause, and there's uh, something beautiful in the emulation side of it, too, because yeah. people are continually upgrading the, the art form of whatever thing that they're emulating initially. What's we're that, what's we're all emulating one another, but... There's something very special that humans can do where you can swing way out sometimes mm. into imaginatory realms and find something quite novel that hasn't yeah. quite happened that way before. And well, it's look a new at, thing that people start emulating after. Well, look at like, you know, like Gerald Tolkien or Stephen King. Mm -hmm. They were they were some of the most profound D and D story Dungeons writers. And Dragons, yeah, but just really because of they were, Tolkien. They were just using the hero's journey architecture mm -hmm. and for writing a good story. Fables, yeah. Yeah. Old so, tales. 
but you know uh, mimicry is the most sincere form of flattery so we should like if somebody's like copying what you do you should be so like angry about it unless they're really trying to like rip you off and like do that but if they're copying what you do like your style or or like your sound or whatever no that's that's flattering but they're doing it they, in, a, they, in a unique way for the you know, yeah, it's like, yeah, it, that's, oh, that's, that's awesome. cool. That's cool. Well, it's like seeing, you know, little kids when they start acting like their parents or somebody to look up to or when they watch a movie and they want to be super. It's it's flattering to yeah. be mimicked. And actually what we do with God, you know, and, we, and inspired by yeah, you know, all yeah. these horrible things like creating AI and cloning and other stuff we're capable of. It's it's messed up, but it is a form of flattery because we're trying to mimic God imperfect, imperfectly mm. as we are. But still, mm. I like the idea that God finds himself through our realization as well yeah like he loves it when and he he can revert he can worship in reverse you know we can worship him he can also worship us when we come into our fullness yeah that's an interesting notion and i don't you know not in a way that the human should be egotistical over it and grow their head over it but in a way that they're in a true reciprocal realization with the inevitable with the divine source for the experience because it's the divine source relating with itself all all the time yeah yeah, and, and it's not us. The thankfulness what we think we are. The thankfulness of of being able to have this experience where we do get to, at least in my opinion, express the inf- express and continue the infinity that is God. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, in the most basic terms, you could see us as expressions of God, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah, um, we you know like yeah. to think that we. I have, like to think of it that way. We're our own movers to a certain extent, but that being your own mover is also an expression of mm-hmm. God. Every pain, pleasure, and everything that you feel, every thought that you've ever had, the evil and the good are all just expressions of God. And we're lucky enough to be able to do this and yes. be aware of it and not just be like a tree just there yeah. or like an animal just existing in yeah. being. And we're what you're speaking thinking. of here, like family and friends like th- this is something that humans like we said earlier in the cast and that many times before on this podcast every human being has access to that experiential knowing and that communion with source yep. and it can be proven to you unequivocally that there is something much more and i think martin and luther, it's absolutely beautiful I and think loving where and martin luther was beyond our knowing i think where martin luther was right was you don't necessarily need an intermediary between you and god to have this experience it can help but you don't need he was right on somebody that. else but the fact that we started doing it on our own without the wisdom yeah. of, of yeah, those well, that had spent many many years dealing with the traps and yeah yeah without with the wisdom of our guy of uh, of guy experienced guides yeah. you could say teachers yeah. or sages or whatever um, yeah, the, we, we certainly are like boats without a paddle in an immense in, ocean. You the know? sage isn't in between you and God. The sage is a facilitator, there, yeah, a facilitator yeah. precisely yeah. so you can realize your connection, mm-hmm. not somebody mm-hmm. standing in the way that you have to go. But pay what money the church into did and, when it yeah. created its secret police and it started to literally like arrest people that disagreed with it, yeah. that's where that separation started to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and when priests started to act that way, more authoritarian yeah. and, and rather than as facilitators so much but more as like the doorway that you had to speak to this thing and then it would speak to yeah. god for you that uh that probably was a mistake to and, some and you know that like you know we're talking about the catholic church at this time but even before when sorry catholics yeah uh, but it's not even, a personal attack even by any means this is just looking at what yeah humans even have done. pre-christianity there's this thing you'd go to the temple you'd pay your money the people 
there would be your intermediaries. Maybe you mm-hmm. talk to an oracle that is between you and God to garner or yeah. garner understanding about whatever your question is. So this idea of having an intermediary between us and God is not exclusive to the Catholic Church. It was, no. you know, for certain periods of time in certain places, like the norm. Well, if you want to go talk to the gods, you go to the temples, you pay your whatever, and you go do it there, mm-hmm. opposed to it being... If you want to there talk was to that God, you just get on yeah. your knees and you talk to God. Yeah, and prior, you know, <laughs> yeah. was just we had a relationship. We had our medicine yeah. men and our shamans. Yeah, you know, predating all the religions. So, you know, so it's actually a pretty pretty new concept. Of, this is a hard one for people to yeah. stomach. They don't want to hear that. You know, we we have trouble hearing that our mystical wisdom traditions, our religions, all actually are rooted in ancient shamanism. Yeah. Every single oh, yeah. one of them, from well, Christianity to Buddhism. Hinduism across the board. The idea of going into a cave with great acoustics and having an experience like you do at Catholic churches. I'll give having that. a religious experience. Yeah, the religious experience. That's from old school, you know, like shamanism, you know, yeah. where you'd go in the cave and... Because we were hunters and gatherers and eating yeah. the fruits of this planet for a yeah. long time. And we ate the psychedelic ones. Yeah. And they gave us incredible spiritual experiences. So powerful and so unnerving sometimes that we had to learn how to breathe just to get through them to the other side to where you break open and increase and experience this golden zone of deep epiphany and insight and understanding and the brain makes all these new pathways um and you you gain this new relation and sense of oneness and communion with reality that's then uh that thing i'm losing my train of thought now i'm oh, gone might be time to go I back i think to it's that. time to go back to Mr. John Bervakey, associate professor out of University of Toronto, um, award-winning lecturer in uh, Buddhist, Buddhism, psychology, and cognitive science, and his Awakening from the Meaning Crisis lectures number 23 on Romanticism. We're jumping back in, fam. Make sure to like and subscribe, and drop Bervakey some likes and subscribes too, and uh, let's go. Give us sets, systematic sets of psychotechnologies. They give us promises, they give us images, and they give us words. It's a pseudo-religious ideology. So it sweeps the continent, but it's like spiritual junk food. It's tasty, but it's not nutritious. And so what happens to it, right? Well, it, it, it quickly gets translated into nastier forms. Not without, first of all, of course, setting the world on fire. Romanticism plays a big role in the rise of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. Don't forget, romanticism, Beethoven is writing music initially because he's a fan of Napoleon. When Napoleon crowns himself emperor, that's when Beethoven actually abandons him. This is the time we're talking about. Why? Why would the romantics be attracted to Napoleon? You see, we we have to be careful here. There's some very good podcasts you can listen to comparing... Napoleon to Hitler. Oh, 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 right? That's your reaction since I mentioned the word Hitler. That's fine. But, right, why? Like, of course, Napoleon didn't engage in genocide, but he drenches Europe in blood. He launches imperial conquests. 
There's lots of good historians that say, maybe we only like Napoleon because more time has passed. But why do they like him? Look what Napoleon is doing. By force of will, and that's what the imagination is, he is pressing a structure on the world. He is restructuring the world. He is painting his picture onto the world. Here is the isolated self pressing itself out on the world. Imagining the world into another shape and existence. So, of course, Napoleon is defeated. And science continues to move on. And what happens is, right, there's a response to the failure of Romanticism. It ultimately fails. Now here, here's the thing that we have to understand. Romanticism, and I've tried to indicate this to you, Romanticism fails. It fails to actually do what it, want, it, it sets out to do. It fails to be the replacement for Christianity. And in that, but it, it doesn't go away. So the way I put those two together, the fact that it fails, which I tried to show you, but it doesn't go away, which I tried to show you, in the notion that we live with decadent romanticism. We live in decadent romanticism. And romantic comedies are the quintessential form of pornography in which we indulge in decadent romanticism. So, what happens after the, the failure of this great pseudo-religious ideology. Well, there are further attempts to try and understand these romantic, the irrational aspects of the psyche and its world-making capacity and the way, and it's, it's we're still carrying this, remember, from Occam and Aquinas, the priority of the will. <laughs> the priority of the will. So, here, Romanticism very quickly passes into Schopenhauer, who is the godfather of nihilism. And notice that a lot of these names are now going to be German. Goethe, one of the founding figures of Romanticism, is German, even though he comes to reject it later. Schopenhauer is German, Nietzsche is German. Hegel's German, Marx is German. Again, everything keeps happening in Germany. And I've shown you why, because that's where this history is unfolding. What does Schopenhauer argue? Right? Well, I, he completely internalizes that model of the world that we saw around the time of Occam and even in Luther picks up on Kant, but he says, right, let's, now let's use an up-down model. Here's the rational part, remember, and it's out of touch with reality, and like the romantics, here's the irrational part, right, and the romantics saw that this as imagination, and they saw it sort of spontaneously happening, but it's still an act of will, 
because they talk about expression pressing out, right? But Schopenhauer really zeroes in on this. And he says, no, no, what's down here is arbitrary will. Notice that it's like God. It's like that God that we get after Occam. Here's arbitrary will. This is the this is the will to live. The raw, let's just put it the will to live. The raw will, this is what drives you, this is what structures, this is what filters and frame. It's all of your experience. This will to live. Of course, this is going to be important to a lot of modern discourse. It's relentless. And it's pointless. Because it is not rational. And here's where Schopenhauer does a twist. It's doing this, but not fundamentally in service of your rational mind. It makes reasoning possible. But all of this, right? So Kant does the Copernican revolution. He inverts Protestantism. And then Schopenhauer inverts Kant. Kant was it that this is processing is for the sake of this. But what Schopenhauer says is, no, no, this is actually who's in charge. He says, the will is like a huge man and the ego is sitting on his shoulders, right? This is a little machine in the service of this. And if you don't think that's Carl Jung, you better go back and read some more Jung. That's what I mean. If you don't get this Kantian heritage, you're not reading Jung very well, right? So, Schopenhauer, let's use one of Schopenhauer's quotes because it really, really brings this out and you can see how it prefigures Freud in such a powerful way. Schopenhauer says that sex is the cruel joke that the species plays on the individual. Because what sex is, is this will to live, this irrational will to live, and it filters and frames all of your experience and it promises you meaning and you know, fulfillment in everything that God and religion and history, and then you have it and none of that accrues to you. And he, and he says, and then what's the difference between you who do that for 40 years and a mayfly that does it for one day? So we're restlessly driven by these erratic... Look at, look at how, again, everything's being drawn into the mind and now drawn into the unconscious, irrational parts. So this is where that arbitrary God has now withdrawn. You know, in that Lutheran, Cartesian, now Kantian, now Schopenhauer way, it's inside of you. And, the, and, we're, and we're just all machines. And you get Richard Dawkins, right? We're all just replicator machines for our selfish genes. It's not a radical idea, I, right? We think we're doing all of this for us, but it's actually all of... And so, for Schopenhauer, is the, it's this nihilism, it's this pessimism. Because he saw that once you remove the connection between meaning-making and rationality, you pay a very, very devastating price for it. And so, what do you have there? Well, what do you have? You have a meaningless existence. Because it's being shaped and framed, not in contact with reality, not even contact with your rational 
egocentric way of, it's just an irrational, unconscious, arbitrary will to live that is shaping, filtering and framing all of your experience with the world. And then you die. And what was it all for? Schopenhauer has enough of the romantics left in him that he has this idea that in art and music we can become disinterested enough in our own self, we can quiet the will to live enough that we can get momentary breaks, momentary vacation, momentary respite from this restless, pointless will to live. So this is how this is the godfather. This is how romanticism as a pseudo-religious ideology and nihilism as an existential response become inextricably linked together, even though most people don't realize it. Most people don't realize that, that these two things, romanticism and nihilism, are actually deeply intertwined and closely related to each other. So think about that when Valentine's Day rolls around. Are you actually expressing, right, the contact with reality, or are you merely being pushed around by the irrational will to live? So, Schopenhauer, of course, has a great follower, right? person who is now very prominent, because if he's the godfather right, of nihilism, Nietzsche is the godfather of postmodernism. So Nietzsche is a disciple of Schopenhauer. He's actually a disciple of both Schopenhauer and Wagner, and Wagner represents Romanticism in music breaking down. So Wagner uh, takes Romanticism and he sort of breaks the last vestiges of grammar. He breaks the connection to the home key, all kinds of things. He opens up the possibility for music becoming untethered from its tradition in very powerful ways. And of course the problem with Wagner is he's also a very vicious anti-Semite. And you might say, what's going on? Like, why, what's, what's this going on with Germany and this anti-Semitism thing? Well, first of all, we've seen how Gnosticism, which is running as an undercurrent, as I mentioned, right, underneath the Rhineland mystics and other things, right, ha has a possible, I'm not equating the two, but Gnosticism has a possible version of it that is deeply anti-Semitic. But more importantly, right, you have a connection back to Luther. Why would Luther say that? Well, Luther would say that because the Jews, in Luther's mind, are followers of the law, and people, and remember, Luther has an interpretation following Augustine and Paul and his own exacerbation of it, right? People who follow the law are people who are trying to earn their salvation. The point of the law is to reveal to you that you're completely incapable of earning your salvation. And so the Jews who reject Jesus reject 
faith and salvation in terms of the law, so the Jews are evil. It's interesting that the two great people, the people who are considered to have created modern German style are Luther and Nietzsche. What does Nietzsche do? Does he give up all of this? No, he takes it and he tries to invert it. <coughs> he keeps the notion of will. He keeps the fact that it's deeper than rational. He keeps that it's framing the world, filtering. He keeps all of that, but he rejects a lot of the Kantian stuff. He rejects the Platonic stuff. He, he famously says, I hate Socrates. He's so close to me, I'm always fighting him. He's got this deep conflict with the axial revolution. Why? Because he comes up with this way of responding to the nihilism of Schopenhauer with the will to power. It shares some features with somebody we'll talk about later, another important Cartesian thinker we're going to come back to, Spinoza, the notion of Canadus. So the idea here is that everything has a will to live. Here for Nietzsche, everything has a will to power. Everything is pressing itself out. And the thing about Nietzsche is he thinks that this is not just a feature of our minds, this is a feature of reality itself. That when we're so Schopenhauer, the idea is when we're in touch with the will to live, we're actually in touch with you know, that driving force. Because again, the most irrational part of us is the part that's in touch with reality. And you get this, this will to power, this irrational, filtering, framing thing. But whereas here, it's pessimistic because it's wearying and it's relentless and meaningless. Here, Nietzsche says, no, no, turn it around, stop. Stop being, and this is his, going to be his point, stop being so Christian. Stop thinking about all that negation as what's right. This will to power, this pre-Christian desire to extend and create and master oneself in the world. That's what we need. Because Nietzsche sees in it something. And there's a deep insight here. And, and if we're going to criticize Nietzsche and the postmodernists, I don't understand people who advocate for Nietzsche and criticize postmodernism. You've got to spend more time getting that working out together. right? But Nietzsche sees something here. He, need, he sees a way of getting back something that was lost in this whole history. How can we get self-transcendence? Because Nietzsche tries to understand the will to power as exactly that desire from the actual revolution to transcend oneself, to go above oneself, to create beyond oneself. And he had, his father is a Lutheran pastor. Hmm? So he understands Christianity in a totally Lutheran way that Christianity is about suppressing this capacity for self-transcendence. It's an unfair reading of Christianity. It certainly doesn't capture Neoplatonic Christianity. Nietzsche is he's deeply influenced by the Stoics and a lot of Axial Age thinkers, and he's trying to bring it back, but he's, right, he's blocked in some important ways by this Lutheran interpretation of Christianity. So Nietzsche says, Christianity repressed this, and that is why we suffer. But if we remove the Christian condemnation of this, 
then the pessimistic, world-wearying will to live becomes the active, creative act of self-transcendence and we can get back the meaning that was lost in the meaning crisis. But, that's a very dangerous way to start thinking in a lot of ways. Because, here's my deepest critique of Nietzsche. And, and, and it's, it's, it's really hard to critique Nietzsche because he doesn't have a single voice. He has many voices and they, and they undermine and criticize each other. It's maddening. And that's why if anybody says they have sort of a single interpretation of Nietzsche, you have to really be careful and cautious about it. Because reading Nietzsche is like reading the Bible. Purposefully. He, he purposely modeled himself. He wrote also Sprach Zarathustra to try and replace the Bible. Because he understood the role of myth and imagery and symbol. Because he's still influenced by the Romantics. But here's my criticism. See, Nietzsche gets this. He understands how self-deceptive we are. He constantly is criticizing human beings for being self-deceptive. But he, he can't do anything about it. He can't do anything about it because he is reduced in his mind. Reason has gone through this Kantian thing and this Cartesian thing, and reason is this logical framing thing. He's lost something. Because the problem for Nietzsche is you have self-transcendence without the machinery of dealing with self-deception. Because what's the machinery for dealing with self-deception from the Platonic tradition that Nietzsche rejects? That's what rationality really is. Rationality is ultimately about the set of psychotechnology that affords self-transcendence by training you skillfully to overcoming self-deception. And because although he is so aware of self-deception because of this heritage and because he is so attracted to self-transcendence, there's a tragedy in Nietzsche, which is why I believe he was attracted to tragedy, because although he wants self-transcendence, he cannot provide us with the machinery of overcoming self-deception other than endless critique, endless satire, endlessly undermining himself. He is honest, but he's not capable of the rationality that is actually the core of addressing self-deception, and therefore he has a one-sided model of self-transcendence enmeshed in a will to power, and that is going to be a very dangerous thing. And we're going to take a look more at that when we take a look at more pseudo-religious ideologies and how they drench the world in post-Napoleonic blood next time. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Meow, 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 meow. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Ruff, Oh, my God. Freaking, is your mind blown? A little bit. Yeah, my mind's pretty blown. Hmm, spiritual candy <laughs> spiritual ideologies. Candy. Or spiritual junk food, but I like spiritual candy. I smell sex and...
but tasty but not nutritious and that's that's ide- ideologies in a nutshell they're they're that tasty it, man. they're sweet they're truffle. alluring but there's no uh there's no uh, we'll call it nutrition but wisdom there's no transcendent understanding there's yeah. no it's no glitzy it's just... and it's pretty and and all of that but it's not actually healthy it's not actually really, really doing anything for you yeah. so we have the french revolution and napoleon and the ro- romantics influence and the, the romantic interpretation of that to attraction napoleon. to napoleon so why, why would they be and well because they're celebrating this guy's capacity this for force of will his, yeah for a way to impressing him. his will on the world yes. and taking his imagination and shaping the world into its image yeah. you know what, what he wants to see so uh yeah they, yeah. they get attracted to this guy um but you know he definitely drenched the world in blood and was going way far beyond boundaries and an imperial conquest um anyway so napoleon's defeated science moves on romanticism has failed as a replacement for christianity christianity and, and religion and in general. failed horribly failed horribly, horribly. Yeah, yeah yeah um we go on living in decadent romanticism as we do today in the word decadent doesn't mean like sweet or something like that it means prone to decay yeah so when we refer to like a decadent dessert it's something that will rot quickly that you must consume quickly mm-hmm. or it's rot your teeth too. or a decadent lifestyle is something that's ultimately going to decay yes um, so this word overly materialistic yeah. overly selfish so decadent romanticism is bound to decay it's yeah. bound to consume itself and die Mm-hmm. Um, that and you can you know you can see that with our modern uh, counterparts of this romantic idea as well. You know we say the uh, what's 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 the phrase the left eats itself. Mm-hmm. You know this idea is like so on the left you've got a bunch of different groups that all think that they're right and at first it works really well but then nobody within the group can be perfect so then it just starts eating itself starts turning on itself and starts turning yeah. on itself and consuming itself and it's not yeah. just the left but that's the saying currently that you may have heard but well that's pretty, that's an old one and, yeah. it, and it's an understanding that comes from what happened during marxism yeah. yeah um yeah and you could say that you know um this romantic ideology is a it it suffers from not being able to reproduce itself um like like a good a good culture and civilization or economic principle will if it's good will readily readily reproduce itself in the next generation and the next generation and the next generation mm-hmm. a bad idea a bad ideology has to be forced on people each time because it doesn't naturally just like you know like this idea of semi free market capitalism where i can work hard have my kids have my house and then my kids can grow up work hard and have their kids in there have their house that works what doesn't work is you know say like you know making everybody this exactly the same and like centralizing everything yeah. because the people who are in that system don't want to pass it on to their kids the kids are going to rebel the against the people that them. are lazy and to- totally unproductive yeah. are actually reaping the benefits the people that are yeah. more productive the people that are more productive don't get anything for being more productive and doing the work yeah. that keeps everyone else alive so therefore it yeah. doesn't reproduce itself there's there's a term there's a term for it that i can't remember i'm not going so to try to pretty self-defeating though um yeah um but so after this what happened after this failure this decadent romanticism this uh this trying to replace christianity well the nihilism nihilism 
came mm-hmm. and sh- we were introduced to Schopenhauer, mm-hmm. the godfather of nihilism, who's you know internalized the the Occam Lutheran worldview. Yep, yep, and picks up on where Kant left off basically, mm-hmm. and he comes up with this idea that. And he comes up with a flip on what Kant believed. He thinks the uh, rationality, the imagination, rather than it um, being an act of will and and so forth, arbitrary. Okay, we come up with the idea of it being an arbitrary will. Mm-hmm. It's the will to live that's driving us. This that's, that's what's driving irrational our will yeah. to live. It's irrational will yes. to live. This this is what filters and frames reality to make it sensible for our little machine ego. So basically, it's in service of uh, the will to live. The rationality is so, like you said, and the the little machine ego is in service of that will to live. Yeah, will is the giant that the ego, the little man, sits upon his shoulder. Yeah. So there's no meaning or fulfillment in this worldview either. It's relentless. It's pointless. It's not even rational. Um, Dawkins, you know, I love how he points out Dawkins. You know, this is how we still see the world today for a lot of people. Dawkins thinks that we're just a bunch of replicator machines for our selfish genes. Yeah. And that's a very one-sided way of looking at the human being. Um, But he's yeah. So yeah, that's stuck in that side of that 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 quote by. Schopenhauer, sex is the cruel joke that the species plays on the individual. So you yeah. think you think you're doing it because you like it and you want yeah. this connection with people, but really it's just your genetics, your special genetics, hijacking you to get its ends, which is replication. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's like boiling it down, and then I think you're missing some ingredients when you make that assumption. Yeah, you know. And well, ultimately, you know, like, but it, but it's witty and it's clever and it seems true because there's truth in there. Well, it's you, just truth that's compartmentalized off of other additional truth that you can add there to make that a more holistic well model. you could say the purpose of life is to continue living and to continue making more life mm-hmm. accurately enough like that's kind of what life does life replicates yeah. itself but not only that it doesn't take into account the immeasurable the like the quality of life that mm-hmm. life is going for because life doesn't just keep recreating the the same thing yeah. it recreates something that's better more efficient and why does why does life want to live just because yeah. it feels good to be alive or is it because there's this thing called love this right. this strange ineffable thing called love maybe is, all life is evolving exists through species to create a, a to create an organism that then can embody a soul i don't know, mm-hmm. you know? yeah yeah no maybe god's turning back into himself through this whole process and so this replicator machine idea really leaves us with a meaningless existence that is just an irrational will to live that in in this idea frames all of our perceptions of the world mm-hmm. at this point as we're you know if, if we were to be an nihilist yeah um yeah so basically this is reality and then you die now it's, well, it's the, it just furthers the notion of of meaningless existence and, and the goal of the nihilist would be to quiet that you can quiet that will to live yeah for some transient moments of escape yeah. From the burden of from the burden being alive. of being alive, yes. yeah. yeah, and 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 so now we get into escapism, yeah, nihilism, yeah, you know, self ex, extreme self interest yeah. and selfishness, and all of this stuff yeah. starts and greed and things like that start to become even more prevalent, yeah, and you know, romanticism and nihilism are tied at the hip. Mm-hmm. This idea that you know you've it's just this one only single moment that really is anything, and then well. If you can strive to quiet your 
base or replicator tendencies, then maybe you can have that one moment and yeah. you know, find the peace. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we're introduced to Nietzsche. Um, I think a lot of wisdom schools reinterpreted themselves at this point and they started to see that like, okay, well we can at least find some peace in the moment. Sure. You know, and there is something to be said about, you know, quieting, certainly there is, quieting yeah. the mind and, and quieting your, your baser, we'll call them id mm-hmm. desires, if you will. But there's um, a joy and a bliss when you go deeper and deeper and deeper into that presence, into that moment. You find that it's not just a meaningless emptiness that, mm-hmm. okay, is at least an escape. It's not. It's direct contact with the immediate moment of reality, and it's depthless. And there's deep wonder and communion that can occur the deeper you go into that moment. Yeah. So there, there's there's jumping over something immeasurably deep here um yeah the night so nihilism and romanticism we, we can see now are deeply intertwined and closely related nihilism stems from romanticism mm-hmm. wow yeah and in in comes nietzsche the godfather yeah. of post uh, postmodernism and i i didn't quite write this right but i think it's close enough the the point of law is to show you that you cannot you cannot you know you can't do anything for yourself. You need a law. You can't make judgments for yourself. You need this law, which, you know, is understandable knowing about his dad who, you know, like was a Lutheran preacher. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so his view of Christianity is very much this oppressive Christianity. So Nietzsche's idea was not the will to live, but the will to power. Yeah. He doesn't have a um, a notion of Christianity that come, he doesn't have the Neoplatonic mm-hmm. notion of Christianity, yeah, which is wholly different yeah. than the Lutheran mm-hmm. version of Christianity. Yeah. Um, yeah, his father's a Lutheran pastor, and you know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche's, he keeps the will, but he rejects, what, what does he reject here? My notes leave off at everyone. We know he takes the will to power and recognizes. He says, "Okay, so there's this will to power, and this is the future. This is a future of reality that he, we he must rejects create. the condemnation of the Lutheran re- interpretation. Right. You know, yes. like but he rejects re- Christianity's path the, the, because the he only has the Lutheran understanding yeah. of it. That's yeah, right. the, that repressive, oppressive. That's right. And and he yeah. his idea so of is of course he rejects that. That's worth rejecting. The will to power is what gets you in touch with meaning and reality, not the will to live, yeah. and not just this arbitrary." Yeah. proposition he that falls into you know, this you idea have, of the will to power yeah wow. which uh it's a there is, double-edged sword there big there, time there is something to be said though about yeah. you know th- this idea of being powerful in the sense that you can really in 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 in, in be a productive yeah, creator well, and master imprint yourself. your mark on yes reality on the, on the reality yes and yeah. master yourself and in, in, in a good productive and way, you take so. it too far then you get super despotic leaders that just are worried about power but in the more innocent sense would be somebody who would like you know create or design a wonderful invention that has his name on it or climb to the top of the mountain and, and name it after themselves the or yeah. you know something like that that's mm-hmm. the more benign end of that that oh, will the to power. Oh, i see what you're saying yeah, yeah, yeah so there's the 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 horrible end of it which is i'm going to enforce my power my will to power mm-hmm. on everybody and they're going to remember me because yeah. i forced it on them and then there's the ones that's like well i want to be remembered for you know my will to power would be to create this say a device that revolutionizes the world and everybody will remember like you know like edison mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know like the tesla. inventors and yep. you know well tesla was just more like you know god was hitting him with lightning bolts in my head and he had it in his head and he had to tell his dad it's like look i don't i don't want to be a religious you know priest or something like that like i'll get you know he was very sickly and he promised his dad if 
um, if you let me go to school for science instead of religion, I'll get better, I promise. And well, he got better and he just wanted to do things and make things and come to an understanding because he used to get these like terrible like blasts of just, you know, <laughs> information and other things just all that once it just yeah. slammed him. And, you know, really hurt. And he was a very sickly kid, too. Mm -hmm. So, like, and absolutely brilliant. Wasn't the most... He didn't want people to be like, oh, Tesla made this. He just wanted to make something that worked better than everybody else's because he's like, you know, what you're doing is not very efficient. That's not the hey, best check way this of doing out. it. He, wanted, he just wanted to make the best things. <laughs> and he got screwed over by way. a lot of different people because he wasn't a, you know, he wasn't a will to power guy. He was more of a... Um, uh, more of a trying to figure out how the material universe works and you know i would say he's probably a little bit spiritual he's too. trying to be pragmatic too yeah, yeah he's trying to do what works he, and he cared he, yeah, i think there's and, a spiritual element there is that yeah, he cared and I, he I think he believed downloads. electricity was alive and was yeah. very much alive yeah, and warned us like, about this so there was something he, more than just but he definitely tapped into that neoplatonic living universe idea. but he used you know he used his will to overcome a lot of things and you mm -hmm. know like even to the point where he like wouldn't eat wouldn't sleep and do things he just you know so will can be good it can but but there's it's, this it's, idea of the will to power that can really be taken to dangerous extremes by dark well because power intense. doesn't get you in touch with reality it and no. you may be able to affect reality very well with it, but it doesn't get you in any more contact with reality. That's the wisdom yeah. end of things. Yeah, Nietzsche thought that if we could block yeah. our will to live yeah. and then use that power for self transcendence, then we'll be good. You know? And so he's trying to take this opposite approach of what Buddha took with asceticism almost. It's like he's trying to lean in mm -hmm. to the having mode. Mm hmm. You know, instead of the being yeah. mode. Yeah. Or, no, no, the asceticism was the denial of being mode yeah, itself, yeah. too. So it's it the wrong way. But, but you know, either you're giving in too, too much or you're denying yeah. too much. But so, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're going into a magnification of having mode, power-oriented oriented ways of achieving. Yeah, you have power. You don't be power. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the criticism of Nietzsche is he couldn't do anything between the divide or about the divide between reasoning and transcendence that's it, it. All, all he could do was critique yeah, himself yeah, yeah precisely you know? yeah which led to you know this postmodernist idea of negative thinking and just critiquing things like yeah. if you just t talk about how bad something is over and over and over and over again then you'll magically come to some understanding yeah. Yeah. um and Nietzsche was honest and he was well-meaning and he was incredibly genius yeah um but he was actually ultimately incapable of solving this by himself, and he tried. I mean, he tried like crazy, you know, but he mm -hmm. ultimately, he left us with a lot of useful thoughts and considerations, though. He, he definitely sure. left us some building sure. blocks for something. But like any great theater uh, thinker, we do cast our shadows on mm -hmm. things, you know, mm -hmm. so. And he fooled himself by mashing this idea of transcendence and will to power together, because will to power, will, you could have a very powerful leader that has it transcended up through the baser instincts of the human animal at all. Yeah, true. Just because you're powerful doesn't mean you're godly or wise. Mm -hmm. You know, we've learned this with despotic kings before this. You know, mm -hmm. it's like just because they're king doesn't mean that they're any wiser. Yeah, they might just be really good at manipulating or they were just people and power or there's people behind them yeah. that are making the real decisions and you're just sitting there with a hand up your butt we've had that a lot too in history yeah yeah that's yeah. where the whole st story of the wizard of oz comes from or at least partially the wizard of oz is about a lot more than just that wizard of oz is deep 
speaking of. And, and now, there's something that we missed. I wanted to cover real fast, okay. and I'm trying to figure out where it was. Uh, do you... It was, back, was it Wagner? Uh, who, Wagner oh, yeah, the anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah, the anti-Semitism. He takes romanticism um, and does some interesting things, like with music, like he breaks from the home key, but he also happens to be an anti-Semite. And what was it him that that or Schopenhauer or who was it that went with this notion of the people who people who follow law are trying to earn salvation and since Jews reject Jesus they're not following the law they don't respect the law so they must be evil kind of thing yeah. that this is where that that idea starts to come about it's it's also a product of romanticism I'm gonna pull up this quote here. It's a disturbing um, concept. Oh, and, and this is where the Germans then twisted Nietzsche, who did not mean anything about racial superiority, um, but he he did believe in man mastering himself and creating a better version of himself. Mm -hmm. So they took his notion of a Superman and they what twisted the, the, it the, for their own. The Ubermensch. And yeah, the, yeah. The Ubermensch for their own ideological ends. Yeah, so Luther, this is a quote from Luther um, in his uh, anti- Luther anti-Semitically states that we are at fault in not slaying them, the Jews. Jeez. The treaties also argue for burning their books, synagogues, and homes and drafting them into forced labor or exiling them. God. And who was it that said that? That was Luther. That was Luther. That, that was, was Luther. That yeah, was Luther. Yeah, yeah was, you mentioned that before the, the show yeah. when we were talking yeah. about Luther. I thought it was Luther, and then I was like, was it Luther? Because he doesn't talk about Luther much at all in this episode, but sure enough, yeah, he does. Bring Luther back up. Yes, yeah, so, that, um, that reason. Yeah, so it's this is the legacy of of Luther. Yeah, so you know, it is what it is. Yeah, and you know, it's like I, you know, I'm not surprised at somebody that took the concept of you know Christ and agapic love and passing it through, and really took the Paul approach of law and order, and you're a sinner that needs Jesus to die for your sins. I'm not surprised he went to the route of saying, oh, you know, yeah, the Jews are the enemy. They worship the old God. They don't worship our laws. In fact, they killed, you know, our Savior and all this stuff. Like, yeah, I could see how if, you know, well, Luther was, before nihilism was a thing, was pretty damn nihilistic. Yeah. So, yeah. of course, well, when you're... in a very well, dark we, time. So, well, yeah, this is the beginning of wide-scale nihilism. Who, who are you going to blame when, when your entire mental construct is about blaming things? This is that... This is that um, the perverted Gnostic idea of the demagogue running a prison facility. That's what Luther was in. And who are the prison guards? But the Jews. Because they are, they are the worshipers of the old God that held us in captivity and squashed us down. Because, you know, there was this illusion that, you know, the old God, the wrathful God was the Old Testament, the God of the Jews. And now there's this new God of light that is above that old God that we must... This you know, is why religion in the traditional yeah. sense that we practiced it in our, the recent history that we can remember is like, this is the version of God that's real and yours is wrong and we're going to kill you because yours is wrong is the stupidest, most dangerous thing. A psychological and ideological certainty is yeah. very dangerous. Other, you know, I don't think that's true to Christ's way. I don't think that you're being a true Christian if you're thinking that wasn't this Jesus, is how you need to operate. Wasn't Jesus a Jew? You're going to argue with other Christians even over which Jesus version was of Christianity is right. I think somebody yeah. should have told Luther that. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. yeah, wasn't Jesus a Jew? And, you know, he like believed in 
God and yeah. you know his, his dad was a Jew and his mom was a Jew and all of his friends were Jews. I'm sure he had yeah. some Roman friends too at a yeah, period. But he was time, a revolutionary one, and he all of his followers a, were Jews. A, a way <laughs> that was like an addendum to Judaism. Yeah. Then it's the next next logical step that you yeah. would go within the teachings of Judaism. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like okay, well, and it's about love. It's about yeah. making. But the Jews persons. were never evil. There was. No. Just evil human beings that happen yeah. to be Jewish, just like there's evil human beings that happen to be Russian, American, Buddhist, sometimes even like there's literally it's happened. It has yeah. happened across whatever kind of tribe you can name. There have been hum- evil humans. Well, and there, there can also be very not evil people that have done some very heinous things as well. That's yeah. the thing. And yeah. also very heinous, evil people that have done very good things. Yeah. It's not just this black and white, and it's not even the shades of gray. It's a menagerie of all types of contrast. Yep, yep. You know, you, you know, and... That's what we get the shades of gray from, basically. Yeah. Say, there's a lot of different factors that you've got a light and dark factors oh, but there's even being. there's even color and hue in there, too. So it's yeah. like... <laughs> and th- I mean, that's what's, that was Solzhenitsyn's realization, was that the that evil... The, the line of evil runs through every man, runs through every human. It's not this ideology or that ideology that is itself evil. It's not capitalism or socialism or this or that. It's human beings that are evil. Now, some isms can be certainly more dangerous and nefarious than others. Well, I think probably what you could consider is the most evil is the thing that lies to you with shiny candy and fattens you up and makes you lethargic and not thinking yeah. and then uses you for terrible things that's evil yeah. You know? yeah all these different systems are just tools for managing yeah. humans are they trying to manage them in a benevolent fashion that helps increase our cooperation and symbiotic or nature e- and peace you know even, drives us more towards peace or is it something that or is it just in, the will to power and control is it just the will to power to but control us even yeah. even if it is trying to say better people's lives because this you know idea of socialism in all forms whether it's you know communism fascism or national socialism that we've seen there were people attempting to do good by humans but you know the the proof of the pudding is in the tasting yes it's, we see we after the, the fact that the like, system nope, is actually inherently yep, destructive it's, very it's designed to destroy. Let's leave evil yeah. out of it. It's it, it destructive and counterproductive yeah. for what humans say that, yeah. are really trying and to do. And then put that thing in the hands of someone that has evil tendencies and you're in big trouble. And or put, even just selfish tendencies. And also put that... Which put, is any human. Put it in the hands of people who are Gnostics and philosophers and thinkers mm-hmm. and all the imaginative ways of horribleness that they can... Yeah, and put we out mean on like the dark world. Gnostics, yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. there would be light Gnostics as well. Well, you know, like Mar- Marx was, you know, a Gnostic as well, and actually, what he preached as far as you know, like the proletariat in the uh, awakened, the awakened masses, that awakening is a Gnostic awakening. They, a certain the type of knowing, awakening, yeah, him. yeah is, is a type of knowing, no, being the knowing the oppressed, yeah, the the gnosis yeah, m- of many the of the truths that Marx know. points out are in fact their his interpretations of what they mean and how to solve them yeah. and ultimately you, were what caused hundreds of millions of people to and, mercilessly turn on one and another I won't, kill each I other in mass genocide yeah. and starvation and t- the most horrifying things you can possibly imagine human beings ever having done and I won't call him an idiot, but he wasn't as smart as people think. And like a lot of his ideas were really flawed. And you know, like Engels had a lot to do with making him sound smarter than God. he actually was. And it was so bad. Oh, and you know who else hated the Jews? <laughs> Marx. 
He, yeah. And also, yeah. he, he didn't he didn't like the blacks or or the Portuguese or anybody else either. His, yeah, there's pe- your Marxism for you. Yeah, yeah. No pe- better than Hitler's idea. No, uh, actually, Hitler hated Marx because Hitler thought that Marx was this secret capitalist Jew that was trying to <laughs> control people through communism and Look at Hitler's that. socialism was the only right way and it was only looking after Rationality Germans extreme um, and not just any Germans but racially pure Germans and that's why it's national socialism it's a racial nation gross so it, it, Hitler's Hitler's Nazism was socialism and racism it's yeah. a racist socialism whereas yeah. communism doesn't necessarily care about your race they just want you to comply yeah, yeah. Unless they can use your race, because Marx did speak on this. He's like, you know, like the African populations could, and the brown populations could be used mm-hmm. in the same way as the farming prolet or the the proletariat, the poor people. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. And you see a lot of this now with the super racialized everything yep. and oppressor the versus cultural Marxism thing. is used as a weapon to destroy mm-hmm. uh, systems of self governance like ours. Yeah, sure cuz well you can't get people to do so good at it. You yeah. can't get people to have a revolution if they're com- if they're comfy and love each other and they have enough to eat. No. You got to turn them against each other. Yeah, you got to start them out a little against bit against each other. Whether it's yeah. physically or spiritually or mentally, you know, just Yep. Um but, you know, I I have a feeling cuz we're going to talk about Hegel next week, but as we go on it's going to get uh, realer and deeper and don't and get hit de- closer and closer to home guys. yeah and yeah. don't 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 get depressed it's easy to get depressed. Why and wanted to share this with you all for a while here yeah, yeah. and it, it has taken 20 20 some episodes to this point just to prime our brain to be able to see how we can actually solve this problem yeah and post and, and, and see what the problem actually and, yeah, is and that really understand how we got yeah. here yeah like detectives going through something and just understanding the actual facts so that we can yeah. best solve the case, you know, yeah. it's, so that's where we're at. And, uh, yeah, that was a big one. That was a really big one, but thank you guys so much for, for joining us on this and for helping this podcast grow. I can't believe that the podcast, the, the audio side of this whole experiment here has gotten to over a hundred thousand views could not have done it without all of you out there. And so I thank you all so much. Uh, if you're on YouTube, um, make sure you like and subscribe and share with your friends and fam who you think may be interested in this as well because we want to grow the YouTube side of things now and reach ever more people. Uh, I also highly recommend, guys, check out uh, Russell Brand's conversation with Cornell West that he had in the last couple of days. You should be able to find it pretty easily on his YouTube or his Rumble page. It's on Earth's Awakening News page on Facebook right now. And uh, look forward to uh, upcoming shows with American Dharma Band uh, on the 31st of this month. We got a show at Granny's in Winchester, Virginia. On the 7th, we're going to be in Baltimore, Maryland at Zen West. And we got tickets for that one. We're going to be headlining that show. And we'd love to have as many of you guys come out as possible to help us really put on a great event there. And then we're going to have. Um, Quite possibly, I think that we're, we might just take this show on April 15th. It's going to be several shows in a row for us, but. Why not? A month of uh, shows, one a week. April so 15th, April fourteenth. I think it's fourteenth um, at, at seven moons. Seven moons. It's going to be a sun and moon festival at seven moons in Hedgesville, West Virginia. Um, so I need I need to get back with Mr. Michael Maverick of Cannon Hill Band about that, who's organizing the event, and Kim uh, so as well. He's the guy we can yell at whenever we find any tiny little thing wrong, and we can mess with him. Yes. All right. Yes. All right, All right yes. Mav. I'm coming for you. <laughs> 
Yeah, Matt Mav's a great guy. He's yeah, hilarious. Yeah. So he'll, he'll take it all in stride. Yeah, he's got a nice tough skin. He can he can yeah. handle the throwing of the shade. Yep, indeed. Indeed. And so yeah, we got that. And then um what was the next one? The twenty second of April. We're gonna be at Blue Fox mm-hmm. in Winchester. Yeah. And so we got uh four shows in a row and coming hey, up. Brandon, you if you're listening, it's Blue Fox on that date. Uh, my saxophone player friend from uh a group I play with, he was asking me, he's like playing at the blue fox at yep. some point in time winchester and, and i i'm almost positive it's the 22nd i'm quite my brain is starting to work and memorizing stuff again oh boy, I, wish I highly worked. recommend lion's main mushroom my brain has never worked for remembering places dates or names so yeah oh it's... if i if i repeat it enough times it starts to seal itself in there and sure enough yeah april 22nd we're going to be playing at, at blue fox with tube freaks and um I'm not sure if zero hour is still on that bill or not. Hey, yeah, be guys, fun. We'd love to, for you guys to come out if you're in the area. We're going all up and down the 81 corridor here with these shows. We're going to be in Virginia. We're going to be in Maryland on uh, on these events now. But we, we get up into Pennsylvania and, of course, West Virginia as well. Yeah. So we're out there. Check out American Dharma Band. That's our band. You can like and subscribe. We're on YouTube as well. And we got all of our music. And you can check the links in actually this video that you're watching right now on YouTube and or wherever you're listening. You can see links to listen to our music. Uh, we'd highly recommend or we highly appreciate you guys checking that out. And uh, I recommend always for you guys to, uh, if you enjoy this series, to check out John Verveke's, uh channel on YouTube as well and, and follow the work. He's doing another series that's following up on Awakening from the Meaning Crisis right now, which is called After Socrates. And it's all about helping us actually develop our wisdom again in this world. So that's uh, lot, lots happening. So we're not just awakening from the meaning crisis. We're working at solving it here together, guys. And it's going to take as many of us together as we can possibly get to be able to pull it off. But, you know, this is what we humans do. We like a good adventure. And we sure do love surfing tidal waves and skirting at the very edge of what's possible we're at it <laughs> we, we don't deal with boredom well let's just put it that no, way no we do we do know how to party and, and have a good time yeah and make bad times when times are too good yeah so yeah, yeah right yeah we're good at messing things up when we get too comfortable too yeah. rat rat utopia experiment comes to mind you know? yeah right no we'll we'll always be ready for the next asteroid if we keep it up the way we are that's for sure. We'll yeah, be we'll, learning then unlearning well, then learning. We'll, we'll either be able to stop the asteroid or we'll be in such a terrible shape that we'll just be standing going, bring it on! Yes! <laughs> finally! Yeah, finally! Right. <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't get to that yeah, point. No. I really would, you know, even if there's an asteroid or it's a nuclear holocaust, whatever it is, like I like the idea of the fact that we're recognizing now that we do have the potential <sighs> to come together even in this day and age where we see ourselves as so separate because we've done this over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the majority of people in the world are reasonable, good, loving, kind people that just want to figure out a way to, to compromise with one another and solve things together. And, you know, they, the people that are on the extremes that are just othering whole other groups of people and demonizing and making mass enemies and, uh, oversimplifying and stereotyping things. Um, they're, they're the minority and we don't have to let them become more popular. We can outmode them. Nah, it should be our goal to convert them into just being, yes. you know, like... 
we can invite wholesome, them. Yeah. Wholesome creatures. Yeah. Um, we can create to... the, the new system that make the existing obsolete. They, they, we make the existing system obsolete by making something that's so attractive and obviously works better that everyone just drops the old thing and moves to yeah, the new thing. It's like, thing. this way is way cooler than what you're doing. Let's yeah, just go over to this. This, this yeah. works better. Yeah. And so rather than a violent revolution, you can actually have mm. uh, a sort of awakening kind of revolution like that. Well, all violence originally begins within oneself and how it sees the rest of the universe. And then we, if we can learn to solve it within ourselves, we're making the world that much lighter because every single interaction we have is going to be a little bit brighter, a little bit calmer, a little bit more peaceful. That's going to impress upon other people and it's going to spread out. And this is, this is how we do it. So yeah, I feel the yawns coming on too. Oh yeah. Pumpkin mode. This is a long one too, but good. It was, it was, but it was a great one. 11, 11, make a wish. Hey, Love you guys. Thank you for tuning in. I've been Chris. I've been DJ.